This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at artofdarkpod. And we are of Art of Darkness. I'm Brad Kelly. This is Kevin Kautzman. Uh, this is this is going to be a banger. This is this is a classic. This is just Kevin and I in the room talking about a great artist, talking about their darkness, talking about what they contributed, talking about their life. Uh, first off, Kevin, how are you doing, man? Never better, Brad. Excellent. I am jacked for this. I am ready okay. to crush my enemies and hear the lamentations <laughs> of their their partners right right <laughs> their lamentations of their polycule yeah that's right i would have their whole polycule shriek and then the, then the one solo poly person off in the distance just alone on valentine's day <laughs> that's right that's right uh you know quick housekeeping you know if you if you like to share you like what we do you want our bonus content which includes a 20 to 30 minute uh, after dark episode for each and every episode we do including this one uh want to get in on the 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 watch along parties we're we're going to try to ramp that back up we kind of stepped away from that for a minute but we got one coming um and the book club book club um right now we are reading um wise blood by flannery o'connor um yeah there kevin's holding it up there wonderful novel we've got some some activity in the chat people seem to like that book we're going to be talking about that on february 24th and if you don't want to actually sit in the zoom room with us and hang out i get it um those are recorded and and you can access them at any time if you're a paid subscriber at art of dark well, patreon.com slash art of dark pod but also uh, we're now this on is a big Substack. deal yes. this is a big deal okay and i want to <laughs> before brad proceeds i want to say Patreon folks, you don't have to change anything. Nope. For those who are already on Patreon, Brad has taken the time. He has made the effort. We're uh, platform polyamorous. Yeah, we wanted a true. backup of yes. what's on Patreon because you never know. So Brad went ahead and did what? What did you do, Brad? We just we have basically cloned what we're doing on Patreon over to Substack. So now you can get you can you know you can get in and get Patreon as we've described, but you can get the exact same thing over at Substack. Substack.com slash at art of dark pod. So it's gonna be the same thing, same issue, same content, everything. Same so price. After this, yeah. Exactly. So after we record this core episode, we'll do the Patreon after dark. I'll post that. And at the exact same time, mm -hmm. Brad will post. Right after Ooh. I post it to Patreon, it will be posted on Substack. Indeed. Everybody's equal. The whole point of this, again, is for us to have a backup. And also, if people don't, if people prefer Substack over Patreon, there you go. You can just stay yeah. with Substack. And I think this is wise, Brad, because we've yeah. got, we got a lot of readers. We got That's a lot true. of literary people. We got a lot of people who are probably more predisposed to Substack. So I think this is a very good idea, Brad. Yep. That's, uh, that's, the, that was my thought process. It was like some mm -hmm. people are going to have 10 Substack subscriptions and they don't have Patreon. 
and sure. it's just easier for them, right? Just absolutely, add it, so. absolutely. Yep. And and if and if somebody at Substack ends up having a vendetta against us, we have Patreon. And <laughs> right. if the Patreon people just find out about the incident, we have Substack. Yes. That's and, right. And surely the two platforms don't talk to one another. They don't go to the same part. They aren't in the same polycule out in right. in, Men right. in Menlo Park. Right. Uh, right, right, right. Now, now, uh, one more time for the people in the back, for the solo poly person in the back, mm. Brad, uh, mm. it is substack.com slash art of dark pod slash at art of dark pod. Our Got handle it. on there is at, Dar art, of at dark. art of dark pod. Very good. I will add it to the website. Mm -hmm. Who are we covering today? We are covering Robert E. Howard. And I'm going to just ask a question. Kevin, what do you know about Robert E. Howard? Here's what I know. Conan the Barbarian, Texas, pulp author, mid-century, first half of the 20th earlier, century, yeah, earlier. Ah, yep. uh, that's what I know. Okay. I don't know a hell of a lot about this guy. Somebody uh, on Twitter today said he's what you he's he's what you get. You know, Love Lovecraft comes from the prim and proper Northeast. Mm -hmm. This guy comes from the raucous oil boom, Texas. Yes. That's okay. exactly right. That's exactly so, right. Yeah. I cannot yeah. wait to find out more. That's one of the reasons I love doing this show. And I have no doubt you're going to, you're going to okay. bring the heat. Yeah, indeed. Well, we're actually going to start with the biography of Conan, the barbarian Conan, ah. the Sumerian Conan, uh, the destroyer King Conan, all these things. Okay. We're going to start those there. Movies as a kid. Those movies terrified <laughs> me as a kid. <laughs> So good. Right? You got to imagine Saturday <laughs> afternoon. You know, we probably, probably went bowling with my great aunt. Great aunt. We went go bowling league, and you know, mm -hmm. so, Saturday morning cartoons, and then on TBS or something. Here comes this two o'clock matinee, Conan the whatever. Yeah, and Swoop and they're huge muscle bound Arnie swinging a sword around, swinging a sword around, and all this craziness. <laughs> and then yeah. and then later, you see the unedited version at your friend's house. He's chopping heads off. <laughs> Heads are rolling. It's like yeah. you don't know. You, you you feel you got tingly feel. You're feeling things you never felt before. Yeah, that's that's right. That's exactly <laughs> as a ten year old right. boy. You're discovering things. You oh didn't no, know. there are neurons lighting up and like <laughs> DNA switching on that you didn't know you had. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the great um, the great John Milius, of course. Yes. Yeah, mm. absolutely. And at some point, we're gonna watch Conan Conan the Barbarian in the watch party for Patreon and Substack Patreon. supporters. Awesome. Yeah. Can't wait to do yeah. that. Yeah. Um, okay, so let me read. I'm going to read a little bit and then I'm going to tell you the biography because I, I wanted to kind of start with some Robert E. Howard words um, and, you know, just so we know what he sounds like. In 1932, he writes um, effectively the first Conan story called uh, Phoenix on the Sword. And it starts like this. <laughs> and this is actually this bit that I'm reading is actually um, it's a it's an epigraph from a book. It's not a real book. It's a book that Robert E. Howard is using as a as a plot device, right? So this is from the Namidian Chronicles. <clears throat> Quote, Know, O prince, that between the years when the oceans drank Atlantis and the gleaming cities and the years of the rise of the sons of Arius, there was an age undreamed of when shining kingdoms lay spread across the world like blue mantles beneath the stars, Namidia, Ophir, Brythunia, Hyperborea, Zamora with its dark-haired women and towers of spider-haunted mystery, Zingara with its chivalry, Koth that bordered on the pastoral lands of Shem, Stygia with its shadow-guarded tombs, 
Hyrcanio, whose riders wore steel and silk and gold, but the proudest kingdom of the world was Aquilonia, reigning supreme in the dreaming west. Hither came Conan, the Cimmerian, black-haired, sullen-eyed, sword in hand, a thief, a reaver, a slayer, with gigantic melancholies and gigantic mirth, to tread the jeweled thrones of the earth under his sandaled feet. Yeah. <laughs> Some pretty good prose. It's pretty good, man. A little, this, pur- little purple. A little over the right, top. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. But but uh intentionally. Robert E. Howard is not pulling any punches. He's gonna go, he's gonna go for it, right? Go big or go home. Um, okay. So I'm gonna read just a little bit more. <clears throat> um, this is from later in Phoenix and the Sword, but but it gives us a little a little bit of a little bit of what Robert E. Howard's mind frame is and a little bit about what the Conan thing is. <clears throat> Quote, alone of us all, Ronaldo has no personal ambition. He sees in Conan a red-handed, rough-footed barbarian who came out of the north to plunder a civilized land. He idealizes the king whom Conan killed to get the crown, remembering only that he occasionally patronized the arts and forgetting the evils of his reign, and he is making the people forget. Already they openly sing the lament for the king in which Ronaldo lauds the sainted villain and denounces Conan as that black-hearted savage from the abyss. Conan laughs, but the people snarl. Why does he hate Conan? Poets always hate those in power. To them, perfection is always just behind the last corner or beyond the next. They escape the present in dreams of the past and future. Ronaldo is a flaming torch of an idealism, rising, as he thinks, to overthrow a tyrant and liberate the people. As for me, well, a few months ago, I had lost all ambition but to raid the caravans for the rest of my life. Now old dreams stir. Conan will die, Dion will mount the throne, then he too will die. One by one, all who oppose me will die, by fire or steel or, or those deadly wines you know so well how to brew. Ascalante, king of Aquilonia, how do you like the sound of it? So just again, giving this flavor and I'm, I'm intentionally throwing a bunch of Robert E. Howard words at you, people, place names. None of it's going to make any sense if you're not already a, a Robert E. Howard stan. But hopefully by the end of it, at least you'll have a picture of what he's created. And Robert E. Howard created a world. There's a lot of um, argument in the niche communities, niche genre communities about pitting Tolkien's built world against Robert E. Howard's built world. Not saying one of them is better than the other, but Robert E. Howard built a world if he eventually would have built a world on this scale if he would have kept going. Okay. Um, And we'll we'll get to more of that. Now, a little bit more about Conan's background. Um, uh, So Conan the Sumerian lives in what's called the Hyborian Age. This is between the sinking of the Atlantis and the beginning of recorded ancient history. The Sumerians of this time are ancestors of the ancient... This is all fictional, right? This is all what Robert E. Howard made up. The Sumerians of this time I, are the... I got ancient. it. I got it. Okay. 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 Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted we to make sure. We don't want to confuse... We're not one of those podcasts. Right. Yeah. Right. We're... Yeah, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Um, the Sumerians of this time are the ancestors of the ancient Gauls, themselves the ancestors of the, of the Irish and the Highland Scots. Um... Robert E. Howard seems to have in my, have had in mind the uh, Simric, which is ancient Welsh, the Cimbri, which are the ancient peoples of Jutland and the Danes. Those are real groups, right? Simric and the, the Cimbri. Um, also the Gimara and the uh, Scythian. And then there were actually a people, a, 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 a tribe or an ethnicity uh, that were the Sumerians. These were ancient Eastern 
Iranic nomads. So Sumerian, there were in history a group of people called this in Conan. Conan, the one, the tribe that Conan came from is a fictionalized conglomeration using that name. Conan was born on a battlefield to a village blacksmith and rapidly matured into a respectable fighting force by the age of 15 when he destroyed the Aquilonian uh, fortress of Venarium. Aquilonia is the stand-in for medieval Western Europe. It was <clears throat> during the Hyborian Age. It's the most advanced kingdom. We'll talk more about that. As Conan grew, grew he was struck by wonder, wanderlust and began a period of what they called high adventure, right? Uh, fighting monsters, fighting wizards, um, having, you know, kind of rough edge romances with everybody from tavern wenches to princesses. <laughs> he roamed the Hyborian Age as a thief in stories like Tower of the Elephant, as an outlaw, as a mercenary, uh, uh, a, even a pirate. Um, his legend grew as he began to command units of warriors, like in the story um, People of the Black Circle, and he eventually seizes the crown of Aquilonia, um, as in Phoenix on the Sword. You know what's fun is like to, yeah. to this day you can you can decide to become a tavern wench. You can just that <laughs> like you can they make a choice. Exist. They exist. This yeah. is a thing. And you know what? More power to you. I think that's amazing. And you can decide to be a a rogue, a wandering mm -hmm. rogue. You can you can save up fifteen thousand dollars and buy a van, mm -hmm. and and you could have a sword in the back. You could have a katana in the back. Yeah, yeah, that's you know, true. I, yeah. I like this. I like this. When, when was he writing this stuff? When so the, the Conan yeah. stories came in the 1930s, between 1932 that. That and 1935. Well, and so we got kind of like a depression. There's like a mm. depression era thing. Oh, and of course you want to escape into this fantasy of this big muscle bound hero who hits, hits the highway and yeah. gets the girl and conquers yeah. his enemies. And yep. Yeah, cool, dude. Exactly. So much fun. Exactly. Yeah. Um, there's a I'm going to I'm going to read just a little bit from uh, uh, actually from the bio. So my my primary source for the biographical material, I have a handful of, of books of Robert E. Howard's writing, which we'll reference. But my primary source for the biographical material is this book called Blood and Thunder, The Life and Art of Robert E. Howard by a gentleman named Mark Finn. I want to hold this up, Kevin, because what do you see on the cover there? <laughs> I see a uh, doughy man with. Does yeah. he have a knife or a, a yeah. shiv in his right hand? And then he's yeah. got a. He got. He's got like a little pistol. It looks like yeah. maybe a little twenty-two. I can't really yeah. tell. Yeah. But he's got. He's got a roll sitting on top. He's got a shelf. Uh, uh, you know, kind of above his pants. His pants are very high. Yeah. Uh, he looks like he looks like a bottom shelf Hemingway figure here. Mm -hmm. uh, you know. Yeah, yeah, cool. yeah, I dig yeah, it. Yeah, he was. He was a. You know, he he was a fairly macho dude, and it's funny. At one point, he was described as big. And, um, and, and, and we'll talk more about this, but at one point it, I read in there that he was six foot 195 and I was like, that's not that big. Like, no, I got, well, I'm not going to say how many pounds yeah. I got on him, but right. I was at the gym today. This is yeah, another day yeah. I had to go to the gym. You but, can't do but, this episode without, yeah. but that's like a, that's like a medium, extra medium guy. That's not like a big, guy. like no, if you saw a... six foot 195, you don't go, wow, that guy's huge. Mm, this is like a guy. So anyway, yeah. I wonder if what that well, has they to do were, with. They were tinier back then. That's what I think it is. Yeah. 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 That's one of the first things I noticed as like a corn fed uh, redneck and a turtleneck from the Midwest when I got to the East Coast. I was like, oh, I'm, I got a head and shoulders over a lot of these people. I'm going <laughs> right. to, this is good. <laughs> right. Naturally, right. but they, you know, but they, but they have a higher IQ. So 
Well, <laughs> supposedly. supposedly. Right. That's that's what yeah. they say. Yeah. That's yeah. what they say in their journals and their papers. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's so interesting. So they yeah, 195 and six foot. I mean, I don't even know what that. Yeah, that doesn't strike me as a huge yeah. guy. Not a big, not a huge guy, not a small guy, but not a huge no. guy. Um, so I'm gonna read a little bit from the story. Um <clears throat> This is from a story called Beyond the Black River. Um, and this is here basically Conan has rescued this young Aquilonian guy from the deep woods. Um, and they're um they're engaged. <clears throat> the Aquilonian kingdom, this is the frontier of the Aquilonian kingdom at the Black River. West of here is territory that's completely controlled by barbarian tribes or picked tribes. Conan's the only non-Pictish person that's ever been able to cross over into the past the Black River. Anyway, we'll talk more about the story because this is beyond the Black River is probably my favorite Conan story. Um, so, OK, here's here's just something. But this is Conan describing his own life to this young Aquilonian. Quote, I've roamed far farther than any other man of my race ever wandered. I've seen all the great cities of the Hyborians, the Shemites, the Stygians, the Hyrcanians. I've roamed in the unknown countries south of the Black Kingdoms of Kush and east of the Sea of Iliet. I've been mercenary, captain, corsar, kozak, a penniless vagabond, a general. Hell, I've been everything except a king, and I may be that before I die. So he is characterized by superhuman strength and prowess but also tactical intelligence you know animalistic power supreme self-confidence um and you know a kind of personal code which involves chivalry towards damsels but he will not hesitate to murder anyone who is against him there's no there's there's no batman where like i'm the good guy because i don't kill people he will just if you're a problem he will split your skull with an enormous sword <laughs> Pretty, I love it. Good. Simpler yeah. times. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, there's just like a there's just like a real like he's not screwing around kind of thing here. Um get off a, my lawn. Exactly. Exactly. Um as a character Conan began to appear in short stories uh first as a remembered past life in the 1931 story People of the Dark which was a actually a Cthulhu mythos story. So Robert E. Howard wrote a handful of stories that were explicitly in the Cthulhu, in Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos on purpose. Um, in this story, People of the Dark appeared in um, Strange Tales. Howard would proceed to write um, Conan into approximately 21 stories uh, between 1931 and 1936. Others would eventually would later pick up the thread, including um, L. Sprague de Camp. Um, who wrote the Lovecraft biography we used back in the HP Lovecraft episode. Um, and the comp would actually issue a book in 1967 called Simply Conan, featuring highly edited editions of Howard's stories, as well as new Conan tales by uh, writers Bjorn Nyberg and Lynn Carter. The original Conan stories were actually out of print until 1977. Um, when Berkeley Books issued three volumes using the original original text with no DeCamp edits. A lot of Conan fans hate Elsprog DeCamp. Elsprog DeCamp, we're not going to get too deep into it. He did not seem to actually respect what Howard was doing. He just seemed to be in the right place at the right time and saw the commercial opportunities. It uh, didn't seem like he actually understood the underlying thesis and why people liked Conan. Yeah, that um, seems to happen a lot. They seem to mm -hmm. give projects under a certain name, something yeah. hypothetical, like True Detective. They seem to give a project yeah. like that to yeah. somebody just yeah. 
that could it could still happen yeah. it's, it's like yeah. it's like sort of subconsciously the industry the media film television publishing kind of wants to kind of wants to take the nuts off of stuff it's like it, it kind of they can't they help themselves wanna, they can't help themselves and it's yeah. just like there's a they can't i don't know it's hard to explain but yeah. it, it it continues to this day right it does indeed indeed yeah. um 1980s and 1990s the conan copyright was actually allowed to lapse um, and then came a whole bunch of new Conan works from all kinds of people. In the 1970s, we got the beginning of a long run in Marvel Comics with the series Conan the Barbarian and then Savage Sword of Conan. And later there was a series in Dark Horse. And then, of course, there's the movies. There's a bunch of video games. It's a whole it's a whole enterprise. Right. Um, of course, the, the in, late night talk show. Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> exactly. There's no relation. Yeah. Can you imagine? Yeah, right. No reason. Like in an alternate universe, it's uh guy has a broadsword. Yeah. Right. You don't entertain Just us. Goofy and like tall and redhead. <laughs> wacky and, yeah. Yeah, and wacky. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so who is the guy that came up with Conan? He didn't he came up with a lot more than Conan the Barbarian, Conan, Conan the Sumerian, but we're gonna get into that. Um, but let's talk about him now. So <clears throat> he's born January January twenty second, nineteen oh six in the unincorporated community of Piaster, Texas, about an hour and a half west of Dallas. He would live his entire life in Texas, primarily in, this, in the town of uh, Cross Plains, which is about two and a half hours west at a little south of Dallas, and is just north of the geographical dead center of Texas. So literally the middle of Texas. Um, now, in order to contextualize Robert E. Howard's life, and understand who he was and where he came from, we have to understand a little bit, but a little bit about the oil boom. So bear with me while I give you a few minute breakdown of the oil boom and how this bears on being a Texan in 1906. Um, <clears throat> now, the Texas oil boom, also sometimes referred to as the gusher age. Okay, this is the period. This is what Robert E. Howard lives through. To understand it, it we kind of have to understand that in the 19th century. There basically wasn't any use for oil until the advent of relatively cheap and efficient um, internal combustion engines came along, um, starting with the auto engine in 1876. As the technology gets re refined, and we start moving away from from coal engines. Steam engines are an external combustion engine. We, you know, we, we're in the internal combustion engine was sort of the next revolution. Um, the demand for oil increases through the late 19th century. And then in 1901 in Beaumont, Texas, prospectors discover the spindle top gusher. It is perhaps the largest oil find up until that time with a gusher that blew for nine days at a rate of a hundred thousand barrels of oil per day. I um, should call her. <laughs> uh, the spindle top uh, gusher, huh? Uh, holy uh, moly. Yeah. I'm looking that one up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you get you don't have safe search on, do you? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Holy moly. Yeah, no, look at that thing, dude. I'm on Wikipedia. Yeah. I mean, this is yeah, this is not safe for work. No, the Lucas yeah. Gusher at Spindle Top. Yeah. Damn, yeah. dude. Oh, and that's right over by Houston, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. So the companies Gulf Oil and Texco were formed to develop this site, this spindle top gusher. Um, and it, it literally this one site basically just shoved America into the oil age. Um, we went it went from oil went from being like something that you used for like lighting and like lubricants and stuff to being like a mass produced commodity that everybody needed. Um, 
And once Spindletop went off, you know, not only those two companies, but there's multiple decades of of, uh, of this area growing with oil companies, prospectors, land developers, real estate investors, you know, roughnecks, all kinds of things. And um, it things grew so fast. Okay, before Spindletop Blue, there were no large cities in Texas. There were zero large cities. Um, in 1900, Houston was a very small commercial center. And in 1910, in 10 years, its population doubled to 80,000 people. And now it's like, what is it, the fifth biggest city in the country or something like that? I mean, they have that that triangle is massive. DF, mm -hmm. DFW is like the second or third largest metro in the country uh, by yeah. population. And I think then, Houston, I think Houston's big. Well, uh, well, if you include Fort Worth, yeah, you're probably right. Yeah, well, there's a whole what in any case, you got DFW, you got Austin in the middle, then you got San Antonio, then you have Houston. I mean, they have like those are four of the most important metros in the in mm -hmm. the country. Oh yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah. For sure. Um, now the way it tended to work, this oil boom is that there was this big boom and then all these little towns would have their own boom when they found like a little reservoir or a field somewhere. Um, so you'd get some sleepy little crossroads with 500 people living there and then someone would strike oil and a month later it's a bustling, like it triples in size like immediately. And the kinds of people, you know, th this is you know, so you get the kind of there will be blood that the Daniel Plainview type people, but you also get um, you also get a lot of uh, men who are rootless, wild and temporarily rich. Right. Just flooding into your town, um, and, you know, include plus the various entrepreneurs from restaurant owners to prostitutes to, you know, everything in between. Um, and of course, consequently, crime also skyrockets so you know fighting alcohol you know prostitution as i said any you know you name it um suddenly suddenly you're some sleepy a lot of you, a lot of jaywalking right happening. that's right right well and you suddenly go from a town that has like its worst cases like ah uh, you know some kid kicked a cow to like all of a sudden <laughs> there's like people stabbing each other you know it, it gets it yep. gets crazy mm -hmm. real quick mm -hmm. um uh, now Robert E. Howard is born 1906, five years after Spindletop, and he would land in his adolescence in the boomtown of Cross Plains. Um, and he had this to say in a 1931 letter he wrote to Farnsworth Wright, who is the editor of Weird Tales. Weird Tales is the most iconic of the pulp magazines that uh, had Lovecraft, Robert E. Howard, and um, <clears throat> Clark Ashton Smith, and a number of other people. It was the big, it was. Weirdly enough, it wasn't the most well sold at the time, but now it is thought of as the sort of the epicenter of this of this thing that that is that is speculative, you know, genre pulp fiction. Um, Howard had this to say, quote, I'll say one thing about an oil boom. It will teach a kid that life's a pretty rotten thing as quick as anything I can think of. He did not like living in a boom town. Not at all. And we'll get into more reasons why. Um Okay, but let's first, before we get there, let's talk about Robert E. Howard's lineage. Uh, some of it is kind of hard to determine. Some of it is kind of lost in tall tales. But Howard claimed, and at least some of this is true, that he had three great uncles who were involved in the 1849 gold rush, that he had relatives who fought with old Hickory, that's Andrew Jackson, in 1812 in New Orleans, um, <clears throat> that's the people who don't know the battle of new orleans is the last big war of 1812 we talk about it actually in the john kennedy tool episode quite a bit if you go back um, and by the that. way happy mardi gras 
It's hey, Mardi Gras today. Right. So there you go to our, yeah. our friends yeah. uh, in New Orleans and everybody who uh, observes Lent. What do you give it up for Lent, Brad? Uh, sugar. You're giving up sugar for Lent. Trying. Like anything that has added sugar. I mean, you All can't right. you can't get away from it 100%, but like. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I have yeah. a sweet tooth. All right, you, my man. I think I'm gonna delete. I think I'm gonna delete Twitter from my phone for for Lent. Hell that's yeah. what I think I'm gonna do, just for my move. phone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a good <laughs> and move. see how I do. See how that's I smart. do. That's smart. All right. Yep. Um, he had uh, Robert E. Howard said that both of his grandfathers rode for Bedford Forest. People who maybe don't know Bedford Forest, he is who Forrest Gump was named after, but he was also a Confederate Army general and later Grand Wizard of the KKK. Hmm. Uh, Howard had another great, had a great grandfather who was in the Confederate Army, as well as numerous great uncles who were in, who fought for the Confederacy. Um, were they, did they fight for Texas or did they fight, were they Louisiana? It's not uh, clear. I, I think I don't I think that's a good question. I don't think they all came to te I don't think they all fought for Texas. They were all kind of scattered around, especially his one grandfather, Colonel George Irvin, came to Texas, I believe, after the war. Sure. Um, he came to Texas after fighting, you know, in the Civil War, mined silver, fought Apaches, right? And bought ended up buying up a whole bunch. At one point he bought he owned a whole bunch of land that later became Dallas, but he kind of lost his <laughs> right. mind and he sold right. it off first. Um, that's such so, a funny thing to think about too. Like we, we talk about this sometimes up here in Minnesota because one of my yeah. friends, actually a buddy of mine who first prompted me to podcast, you know, him. uh, mm. you know, you, you know who I'm talking about. Yeah. He knows the entire history of like the region and you can still name the families that own parcels of land in it up here. It goes back to like the early French settlers. Okay. Yeah. Like, yeah. Kinda, it's easy to forget that like, yeah, yeah. The people who got here first owned this land and then it got built up. And now it's just like, they just sit on piles of money from land. They sold like them, 200 yeah. years ago, as long as they stayed sober and like passed mm. the money down like that. That's, right. that's a huge part of the story of this country. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I got one thing to say at this point in the podcast. Yeah. Yeehaw. <laughs> Yeehaw. Right. right. We're, yeah, here we are. You put me in place and time. Yeah, now I'm going to give you another little. I'm going to give you another little thing. So, uh, Howard's mother, who is very keen to assert the families, and and she's the daughter of a of a Confederate colonel, right? She's very keen to assert the family's nobility or Howard's no nobility. Um, he might have gotten some of these bulk, some claims about his lineage from her, but let me read you a little thing from his bio in a letter that he that he wrote. Um about his you know his his family history <clears throat> quote and this is to august derleth um he wrote this in 1934 people may know august derleth is a guy who created arkham house kind of i think after lovecraft died and and like reprinted all of the lovecraft stuff that had appeared in weird tales <clears throat> quote one of the main reasons i've always hoped success would come my way was so i could travel there are hundreds of places in my own state i've never seen though i've roamed over a goodly portion of it I suppose I've done less traveling than any of my family for hundreds of years back. They were always a race of wanderers, all branches of my various lines, and seldom stayed long in the locality in which they were born. My father was born in southern Arkansas, my mother in eastern Texas, my maternal grandfather in North Carolina, my maternal grandmother in middle Tennessee, my paternal grandfather in Georgia, my paternal grandmother in Alabama, and they married in Mississippi. My paternal grandmother's father was born in South Carolina and his father was born on the Atlantic Ocean in an immigrant ship and his father his father was born in County Galway, Ireland. 
My great-great-grandfather, the one born on the ocean, was carried ashore at New York, then southward by his family, and his wife was from the west coast of Ireland. And their son, my great-grandfather, born in South Carolina, married a Georgia woman whose father was born in Denmark. I've had aunts, uncles, and cousins born in every southern state there is except Kentucky and Florida and a few in the Midwest. Most of them I've never seen. I have relatives all over East Texas, northern northern Louisiana, southern and western Arkansas, southern and northern Missouri, and eastern and middle Oklahoma, and very few of them have I ever seen. Okay, so. Uh, Is it very interesting because that that uh, uh, he's kind of doing an "I've been everywhere" man thing? Right. That is an echo of how he described how Conan described what he had done earlier. It sounds like a similar thing. This guy likes likes lists. He, he likes does. like a comprehensive <laughs> da da da. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I yeah, was a fighter. Did. I was a lover. I was a warrior. I got cousins <laughs> everywhere, man. I've been right. everywhere, man. Yeah, yeah. Like the guy yeah. who sits next to you at the bar won't shut up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In in the in truth, as far as I can tell. Um, he at least as an adult, Robert E. Howard only left the state of Texas once. Hey, listen, so, yeah. If you if you get to Texas, you don't have to leave. That it's is a, a fact. That is a big state. <laughs> yeah, I gotta say, state. man, if there's like one state in the union that mm-hmm. where you can like, if they said you got to go there and you can never leave again, you could do a hell of a lot worse in terms yeah. of like, if you're somebody who likes new and interesting things, mm-hmm. you could live an entire life in that state, and it would. You probably never get never get bored. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh man, yeah. it's just so bad. It's, it's huge. It's a country. It's, it's a country of, of its own. Huge. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, so let's talk about his father briefly. His father was a man named Isaac Mordecai Howard. He was born in 1872, Holly Springs, Arkansas. Second youngest of six. He moved with his mother. His father died when he was young. Uh, to Texas when he was 13 years old, and his old and his oldest brother took responsibility for the family. Isaac Howard graduated from quote-unquote, medical school in 1905 and spent the ensuing years chasing various booms, whether cattle, land, railroad, or oil, for more than a decade afterward. Yeah. Why did you put scare quotes around medical school? Well, it's not medical school in Texas in 1900 is not like when you imagine your kid going to become a doctor, he's not going through what they went through. Come here, come here, son. I'm yeah. going to need you to cut off this toe. Right. Yes, he's still alive. Put it in his mouth. Right. I'm going to need you to cut off this toe. And if he yelps, yeah. Yeah. keep cutting. Yeah, got to right? yeah. cut, cut the toe out, to cut the toe off to let the ghosts out. See? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, the ghosts get trapped gotta, in there. We got to get the ghosts out. Here's your certificate. Right. Now, <laughs> <laughs> we got toe ghosts here. Uh, that's very funny. I, you know, the other thing I wanted to say was Mordecai. You don't hear that name much anymore, do you? You don't. Mordecai. You don't hear that name much. If you, if, if a guy shows up to like do your plumbing or do your your lights or whatever, and he's hmm. like Mordecai, you got yeah. you you respect that. I I do Strong trust a Mordecai. I would I trust, trust a Mordecai. Mordecai. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Somebody was taking something serious in his, you know. Hmm. His parents made a yeah, real, there are, real decision. There are, there. There are, there are already yeah. toe ghosts in the Mordecai family. <laughs> That's right. Uh, his mother. <laughs> his mother is Hester Howard Nee Irvin, uh, born in Dallas, Texas, 1870. She's the, like we said, daughter of a Confederate journal, journal, Confederate colonel. She had nine siblings. Uh Hester's mother died when Hester was four and the family relocated to Louisville, Texas, where um, she had uh, where he had another six kids. 
Um, so after some wanderings, uh, this family chasing silver in New Mexico, among other things, they settled for a while in Missouri, where Hester contracted tuberculosis around 1890. This would eventually be her end, but she lived with it her whole life, usually as a secret. Um, so she was tubercular and, you know, kind of just hid from people a lot of the times, especially when the symptoms were bad. Eventually, while living in mineral wells with some siblings, she met Isaac Howard and they married in 1904. He was 32 and she was 34. I'm going to read a quick little thing um, about her and this whole scenario. It's interesting. They only end up having the one kid, Hester and um, and Isaac, but they both come from huge families. Massive families. Right. So you got nine right. siblings. So you mean, yeah. Yeah. Uh, she had yeah. nine siblings already. And then her dad had another six and they all lived in the same house. Right. Like 16 people. <laughs> yeah. Insane. And they all lived. They all lived to. Apparently. Maturity. Yeah. I mean, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So Oof. huge. And his and, and uh, Robert you, Howard's you've got dad an entire had... football team and you can swap people out for special teams. You got a backup <laughs> quarterback. Right. Yeah. 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 You're making yourself your own militia. Yeah. For real. For real. And his dad and Howard's dad had six, uh, five siblings. That's a big, that's a big family too. Six kids is Absolutely. a big family. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Um, here's about Hester quote. Hester was gracious and charming. Um, this is when they were young. Isaac was forceful and magnetic. She was maternal and caring. He was dashing and intense. It is not difficult to imagine that Hester saw much of her father in Isaac, just as Isaac saw characteristics of his mother in Hester. Both came from large roaming families, but they lacked the desire to settle down and cultivate a large family themselves. In this, they were very much like kindred spirits. Now, uh, Robert is born in 1906. His mother nursed him and being tubercular, it seems there were... Robert was probably fairly sickly as a child. Um, when he was about a year and a half years old, his mother miscarried. And it's there's some evidence to suggest that after this, Hester basically just checked out of the marriage. I mean, they never got divorced or le really left each other or anything, but it seems like she was no longer really in it in the marriage, let's say. She was a could be a nervous, dramatic woman. She also seemed to suffer depression from depression, especially after losing that second child. Um, Robert's first years up until from uh, 1906 to 1916, he would the family were, was basically nomadic. They moved constantly several times a year. They would pick up and move to some other part of Texas. Um, and as you can imagine, fairly destabilizing for a kid. But let me let me read a little bit about this um <clears throat> this is a letter uh this is a letter that robert e howard wrote to hp lovecraft in 1930 <clears throat> quote why by the time i was nine years old i'd lived in the palo pinto hills of central texas in a small town only 50 miles from the coast on a ranch in atascosa county in san antonio on the south plains close to the new mexico new mexican line in the wichita file Wichita Falls country up next to Oklahoma and in the piney woods of Red River over next to Arkansas. If you glance at a map of Texas, you'll note that covers considerable considerable distance altogether. And I didn't mention a few short stays in Missouri and Oklahoma. I've lived in land boom towns, railroad boom towns, oil boom towns where life was raw and primitive. And all I can say is Texas is just too big for me to grasp. Okay, so uh, we don't know really because of all these movies, we don't know a ton about his 
childhood, but um, we know we can start to see uh, some of the magic that he would later draw on for his stories um, and, you know, kind of how sometimes stories can live sort of undiscovered in history. Um, there's a letter he wrote about sort of some of his just kind of geographical influences, the influences of living where he lived um, in the time he lived and around the people he lived. Um, this is another letter to Lovecraft. Yeah. Quote, uh, the one to whom I listened most was the cook, excuse me, old, uh, old aunt Mary Bohannon, who is nearly white, about one sixteenth black, I should say. Mistreatment of slaves is and has been somewhat exaggerated, but old aunt Mary had had the misfortune in her youth to belong to a man whose wife was a fiend from hell. The young slave women were fine young animals and barbarically handsome. I just, I should have probably prefaced this one. Uh, what year is he but, writing this? 1930 1930 um, man yeah. from texas writing writing hp lovecraft yeah hello yeah. doctor yeah what was that it was on the nina simone episode where didn't they they refer to her as an animal at the new york times yeah. In the review? yeah 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 no so this yeah. is good we're getting a little history lesson you know that yeah. kind of language yeah. uh didn't emerge out of nothing yeah yeah um you understand Aunt Mary told tales of torture and unmistakable sadism that sickens me to this day when I think of them. Now, he's talking about her when she was a slave, right? Dude, that's like, that's so gnarly. And he starts his letter and he goes, now this is this stuff is over-exaggerated. But in this case... Right. <laughs> right. Yikes. Right. Damn. Right. Yeah, I should have prefaced this letter. Hey. I missed my note. It, this You're is, all right. There's going to be an ongoing kind of robbery. And in fact, we'll talk about in the After Dark, we're going to talk about uh, two things. That are kind of related to this. One is a story by Robert E. Howard, one of his earliest stories called The Last Race. And guess what that's about? And we're also going to talk about one of the influences on Robert E. Howard's fictional, fictional um, Hyboria age in which Conan lives, the deep occult influences on that whole world that he came up with. Okay. Um, okay, uh, continuing on. Thank God the slaves on my ancestors' plantations were never so misused. And Aunt Mary told me how, uh, told how one day when the black people were in the fields, a hot wind swept over them and they knew that old Mrs. Bohannon was dead. Returning to the manor house, they found that it was so and the slaves danced and shouted with joy. Um, old Mrs. Miss Bohannon was like the evil slave owner wife. Uh, Aunt Mary said that when a good spirit passes, a breath of cold air of cool air follows. But when an evil spirit goes by, a blast from the open doors of hell follows it. Okay, here's another little bit. And there was one Arabella Davis, I remember, whom I used to see when a child going placidly about town collecting washing. I mean, when I was a kid, not Arabella. She was a black philosopher, if there ever was one. Her little granddaughter tagged after her everywhere she went, carrying Arabella's pipe, matches, and tobacco with as much pomposity as a courtier ever carried the train of a queen. Arabella was born in slavery, but her, memory, her memories were of a later date. She often told of her conversion, when the spirit of the Lord was so strong upon her that she went for ten days and nights without eating or sleeping. She went into a trance, she said, and for days the fiends of hell pursued her through the Black Mountains and the Red Mountains. For four days she hung in the cobwebs on the gates of hell, and the hounds of hell baited her. Is that not a splendid sweep of imagination? And the strangest part is, it was so true and realistic to her that she would have been amazed had anyone questioned her veracity. Okay, so 
Um, now thinking about, you know, how does a guy from the middle of Texas end up coming up with these stories? I mean, he, he, whatever a person thinks about the Conan stories and the many other Robert E. Howard stories, they're quite imaginative. Now he's writing for, he's writing for money to make a living. And so sometimes this stuff is kind of rushed. And so sometimes there's a bit of a formula to how some of these stories work. But in terms of the details and the worlds he's building, quite imaginative. So, you know, kind of wondering, where does this guy come up with this stuff? Well, I think we're going to sort of paint some strokes in and you're going to kind of see where at least some of it came from. Um, the, you know, his, the thing is, living in the middle of Texas in the time he did, there was no radio. He didn't hear a radio really until he was like 16 years old. Obviously, no television. Um his father was usually gone on trips. He was a country doctor, right? So the dad was barely ever around. Most of the time he spent, it was just him and his mom. And just picture that of a, a kind of a sickly woman, a little nervous, a little dramatic, loves her little boy, but that's kind of her thing. And her little boy, her and her little boy out in some little, out in some little house, middle of Texas, they move around so much. They don't know their neighbors. They don't know anybody around them. You know, no air conditioning, no air conditioning, right? Hot as hell. Um, yeah, just uh, picturing that is mm. it's it's a tough way to go. I mean, there's harder ways to go. You could be on you could be on Ole Miss Bohannon's plantation. You know, that's worse, obviously. But sure. um, you know, a, a very per particular a of lifestyle interiority that we don't have to experience. You're inside right. your own head a lot. Yeah, you can yeah. imagine when you get your hands on a book. Yes. Yeah, or a comic yeah. book or whatever right. they're reading at the time that would be yeah. yeah yeah she she would she would try to entertain him largely with stories reciting poetry she taught him to read before he ever went to school and he was a very precocious reader but as you say it was kind of you couldn't know get your hand on with whatever you wanted to read it was very limited it often wasn't the library generally no bookstores so um, oh boy today we're gonna read the book of job again oh <laughs> golly oh Right. <laughs> mommy, mommy, please, can we read the Psalms again? <laughs> right. You know, just right. that kind of thing. I mean, yeah. and hey, you could do worse. You could do worse. But sure. But it if, that's like, if that's all yeah. there is, that's gets right. in your little, for a oh, little kid. Morde Mordecai, Mordecai. <laughs> <laughs> oh, golly, we're going to read yeah. the book of Revelation again. Oh. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, 1915. The Howards finally come to Cross Plains. Uh, this is, you know, this is basically Cross Plains, Brownwood area. This is, you know, this is basically Robert Howard, E. Howard's uh, home for life. Dr. Howard, their moving there was announced in the local paper. You know, he's a, he's a local, he's a doctor. He's coming to town. He's going to hang up his own, sh his own shingle. And um, Howard, uh, sorry, Dr. Howard, Robert E. Howard's dad, had been chasing a boom forever. The whole idea was I'll find the right spot. If we get there as a boom, an oil boom has happened, we're going to be rich, right? And it's not stupid. Um, <laughs> uh, he gets there in time for the oil boom in Cross Plains. They never really quite get rich, but they don't, for a time anyway, they don't have to worry about money a whole lot, though Dr. Howard is you know, working, working pretty hard country doctor. You got to like travel all over all, you know, you got sort of a, a domain and you're traveling all over. Right. Sure. Um, let me read a, let me read a little bit. Um, I'm looking up, I'm looking up cross plains, Texas right now. We got, Oh yeah. Baseball, yeah. softball field, little yeah. Buffalo's daycare, 
Cross Plains mm. High School, Cross Plains Community Center, Gene's Feed Barn, Woody's Museum, mm. oh, Turkey yeah. Creek Rodeo Club. Looks like mm -hmm. a good time. Looks like yeah. a, you know you got the, you got your Baptist Church and kind of mm -hmm. got your city mm -hmm. city on a grid here and mm -hmm. it is it's out there yeah. it's, it's out there yeah there's not a whole lot around it you know you zoom out and it's like oh yeah that's by itself yep, yep. There. it's right there in the smack dab in the middle of Texas yep okay um, I'm gonna read a little bit this is actually from an autobiographical novel that um, Robert E Howard wrote in 1928 called Post Oaks and Sand Roughs. Um, and in here, he he changed the name of Cross Plains to Lost Plains. But nonetheless, he's talking about this this town. Uh, you know, I missed a big one here, dude. What's that? Bubba's Bubba's Smokehouse Barbecue. That sounds gotta, awesome. Got to shout out Bubba's, dude. That sounds awesome. That sounds okay. I'm literally <laughs> sal salivating right now. I know. Dude, I know. dude uh, they've got, I, they've got I, onion rings the size of your head. Yeah, they do. <laughs> amazing shout out to bubba's yeah yeah um all right so quote the oil the oil boom struck uh, lost plains overnight the town was deluged with oil workers and magnates abstracts flew like leaves in the wind it was shallow quote town site stuff and Derek sprang up in every backyard. Standard rigs built solidly of heavy timbers, sputters which moved on wheels and were an innovation in the Lost Plains country, which uh, was used to deep tests and star machines, which were merely glorified sputters, taller and able to go to a greater depth. Here was drama, swift moving action, and great material for story. But Steve, Steve is uh, his him. This, that's him in this story. But Steve moved among it untouched, despising oil and everything connected with it, hating the roughnecks who swaggered and jostled their way through life and detesting the loudmouthed, steely-eyed promoters, the keenest of whom had never opened any book in their lives except some book dealing with the oil industry. Steve spoke the truth when he said he hated them all too much to write about them. Um, and then here's a letter uh, to Lovecraft from 1930. Quote, I've seen towns leap into being overnight and become deserted almost as quick. I've seen old farmers bent with toil and ignorant of the feel of $10 at a time become millionaires in a week by the way of oil gushers. And I've seen them blow in every cent of it and die paupers. I've seen whole towns debauched by an oil boom and boys and girls go to the devil wholesale. I've seen promising youths turn from respectable citizens to dope fiends, drunkards, gamblers, and gangsters in a matter of months. So it's kind of interesting. I mean, you know, you are in this like kind of small town, sort of isolated from the rest of the world in a certain in, in, in a lot of ways. But if you're there when a boom happens, it's like you can see like like a mac a microcosm of like the industrial revolution happen like outside your window, right? Sort of. Um, it's a it's a weird like it's a weird way of like accelerating human history right in front of your face absolutely um, i mean there yeah. will be blood does a really good job of kind of mm -hmm. showing this yeah dramatizing yeah. this yeah. yeah it happened to the state that i'm from man the, the mm -hmm. place that i'm from experienced this and i i haven't lived there for a long time but mm -hmm. i heard a lot about it i mean yeah. and when i went back i would notice it I mean, right. It was wild. Right. The whole Western North Dakota is unrecognizable to to what I grew up with. That was all like oil shale or shale it's oil. Shale it? oil. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. It, it peaked in 2012, but it kicked off in 2008. Man. And 
real estate prices went through the roof, rent went through the roof. People would literally, like in my hometown, Mandan, Bismarck, Mandan, people would literally, they would, the housing market went nuts there because that has schools and services and whatever. And people, these guys would literally drive two hours to, right. to go work. You know, they right. were flying in teams. This is a bit tangential, but they were flying in teams for like, you know, it'd be like 14 days on 12 hour days. They'd fly them in from Denver. They would live in Denver mm-hmm. and they'd fly them up. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the kind of money you're talking about where right. suddenly like people were famously making six figures, like managing a Wendy's right up there. Right. Totally right. nuts. Right. Because yeah. you got some experience. And and the thing is, like, they need it. Whatever oh, is, yeah. managing a wedding, well, it, Wendy's well, down to the oil work, like you need these people for this business to keep churning. And it's only going to last and, so long, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you also have to be willing to live in fucking Williston, North Dakota, where it's like 20 men to every woman. Right. right. And you got to be willing to, in the winters. And I mean, they had, they right. had guys living in, um, you know, uh, like trailers, like I'm they sure. would just set yeah. up rows of trailers. Back I mean, yeah. yeah. Wild. Yeah. But I mean, listen, if you're a young dude, you want to make some money, you want to make 180 K a year. Oh, dude, you're five years. I mean, dude, you know, you're, yeah, you're 20 or something. Go do that for a few years, sock away half of it or more, come back, more. start a little business doing something Move to Florida. Yeah. Right. Make, yeah. make wise investments. I mean, listen, yeah, yeah this is, this is the thing. It's people who yeah. work. This is like actual right. real work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not, not, uh, you know, increasingly adopting the phrase computer toucher. What do you do for work? <laughs> computer toucher. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go soft. Just right. lily soft. <laughs> and that's, I would, I wouldn't change a thing, but anyway, I, but I respect this kind of thing. You're totally yeah, right sure. about that, that rapid fire. Like we go from nothing to like, here's the bank, here's the yeah. school. We're just gonna we're just gonna um, speed run Western right. civilization in five right. years, three right. years, right? Right? Yeah, right? Yeah. Crazy, yeah. crazy. Mm. Um, now, so Robert, he gets to this cross plains area, and he after this childhood of moving around, he actually gets to kind of stabilize into his identity a little bit. You know, he he starts to um, there's there's kind of a tall tale or a myth about Robert E. Howard as being this like completely isolated guy, um, and that's just not the case. He 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 was a he wrote 12 hours a day. So he was isolated in that manner, but he was sociable. People liked him. He liked other people. Um, he, uh, he, he starts to make some friends, um, uh, as, as a boy, he's, you know, he's this kind of kid who would lead the imagination games that you play as a kid. Right. Um, and he had buddies that he would keep from this, the 19 teens, he would keep well into adult life. I mean, the guy he left his literary estate. He was friends with him when he was like I think twelve or thirteen. Um, so, um, kinds of things that they did as boys, you know, they'd go on hikes. They'd ride horses. Of course, your roughhousing. Eventually, they started boxing each other. Boxing was a big a big thing to do back then. Um, you know, it was like the biggest spectator sport in the world was boxing at this time. Um, and he did, you know. He did start to read recreationally, but it wasn't something he was very public about at first because uh, 19 teens in a Texas oil boom town, reading was kind of for sissies, frankly. Um, and... Looks like we got us a reader. <laughs> right. What you reading for? What you reading for? <laughs> Shout yeah. out to all the Art of Darkness fans. We right. know y'all are readers. Yeah, we respect right. and we respect you. Come into the telegram, t.me slash short of dark pod. We have a lot of fun there. The more yeah. the merrier. If you want to win everybody's respect, uh, join the chat, read the room a little bit, read the rules. We got rules, and then uh, post your favorite pen. Yeah. People love yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Um, okay, so his doc, his dad settles into his role as a doctor. Robert E. Howard settles into his role as a young man. And his dad settles into his role as a doctor. And he becomes not only a respected member of the community as a doctor, but he becomes a classic front porch Texas teller of tales. Right? And this picture, you know, in the one hand, you got to imagine Robert E. Howard is a boy. He's reading pulp magazines and stuff in his room. But his dad's out on the front porch having a glass of whiskey and a smoke. And he's telling some bullshit story to a friend of his out on the porch. Right. Um, so he's a leg puller, as they called him. Uh, <laughs> his his mother, you know, high strung, very formal by Texas standards. And she she tries to have like these little tea parties in the afternoons. And, and it's an oil boom. Like it doesn't really fit. You know, people are, it's an oil boom town. Everybody's real working like it just doesn't it just doesn't work. You don't have dinner parties and that sort of thing in this environment. Um, but she is, you know, she's sort of trying to live into this role of like a southern a southern lady. Right. She's the daughter of a, a Confederate colonel. She wants people to know that her family is very respectable and all of this kind of thing. Um, now, in Cross Plains, <clears throat> Hester starts to seem to try and steer Robert away from her father or from his father a little bit tries to she she's we have a sort of a devouring mother archetype here and, and this is going to come up later uh, a lot uh, very prominently in this story um something but this, something uh correlated between the desire to have tea parties and the devouring mother I think I think Lewis Carroll kind of nailed it there's some sort of weird <laughs> Could be resonance there. They're very well. They're very well. Could be. Um, Robert E. Howard gets a, a dog named Patch. It's one of his best friends as a, as a boy. Aww. And Patch, Patch becomes a character in in one of his books, uh, the Bulldog Breed. When Robert E. Howard at one point is writing a lot of boxing stories, these were apparently a very popular genre for a while. With boxing story, you'd get a whole magazine and it would just be boxing story after boxing story, which I can't imagine. Like at some point, it's like. Yeah, we get it. The guy, they get into, like, you know what I mean? How many boxing stories mm. can you tell? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it ends yeah. in one of three or four ways, usually. Yeah, yeah. it's just, right, right. So I wonder, what, anyway. I wonder what, yeah, I wonder what those boxing stories read like. I'm very curious. But again, different yeah. time, different time. Yeah. We, yep. just, we want yep. we want anything that's exciting, anything that's, like, right. going to distract right. us because it's 108 yeah. degrees out. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um here is a little bit about Robert E. Howard, uh, a little, a, one of the very few childhood anecdotes that we have. <clears throat> Quote, um, years later, Elsie Burns, the postmistress of Burkett, uh, would recall meeting Robert and Patch, his dog, on one of their outings. I'm Robert Howard, he said. I'm sorry if we frightened you. Patches and I are out for a morning stroll. We like to come here where there are big rocks and caves so we can play make-believe. Someday I'm going to be an author and write stories about pirates and maybe cannibals. Would you like to read them? <laughs> it's just a charming little little story. Um, yeah, cute. We got a dog. Pat, this is some weapons grade Americana. We got it, is. it really, it really is. My dad's the doctor. Do you know my dad, Dr. Howard? Here's my dog, Pat. Right. <laughs> I'm gonna write about cannibals. Right, right. You cool. do that. You do that, Bobby. Yep. Uh so let's talk a little bit about his influence. So, you know, we've talked about this. We've kind of already hit this point. There's no good bookstores. There's barely a library. In in Howard's time, only 2% of all books sold in the country were sold in Texas. 
I don't know what that number is now, but I'm sure it's bigger than, I mean, half the country lives in Texas. So, um, uh, and there's yeah, a couple like 10, very good schools the there too. Yeah. Yeah. There's some yeah. good schools down there. Yeah. Yeah. I've so, heard that. yeah. So where's, so where, where is he getting his influences? Right. Um, he's got his dad being the, the Texan storyteller and other Texan storytellers around, um, but are also influenced by tall tales and, you know, tall tales, I don't know. Tall tales seemed like a big deal when I was a kid. I felt like we were they were really encouraged. We were really encouraged to to read them and know them when I was a kid. Um, and I think part of the reason is is it's it's not a uniquely American format, but it kind of is. The Paul Bunyan thing, Pecos Bill, and, and Calamity Jane, and all of these characters. Um, and it's a style of storytelling, right? It's got that exaggeration, but it's kind of always told with like a wink, you know, and and. Um, it's humorous. Doesn't take itself too seriously. Um, you know who were the the torchbearers of the tall tale? The Cohen brothers. Mm. The Cohen brothers mm. love a tall, old timey tall tale. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. they've embraced that folkloric American vibe. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's, Thank goodness that's they true. did because it it feels like if they hadn't, it it feels like we're at risk of that kind of going away. Yeah, I think that's true. I think you're right. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's read a little bit about um. Just about tall tales. Uh, this is from uh, a woman named Molly Boatwright, or sorry, Modi Boatwright. Not not a not Modi a Boatwright. This is a, this is a guy who wrote about Texas and American folklore. Okay, <laughs> quote: um, The westward-moving men of action, unhampered by any highfalutin theories of art, created their own literature. The pathos and tragedy of their experience they recorded in their songs, their zest for the hard life of the frontier and their prose tales. Had they lived in a pre-scientific age, they might have produced an odyssey or more probably a Beowulf. Since, however, the age of this serious folk epic had passed and they were essentially realists, their heroic literature took a comic turn. And in keeping with 19th century ideals, their comedy was the comedy of exaggeration. In the tall tale, they developed one of America's few indigenous art forms. Now, I think America actually has a lot of indigenous art forms, but nonetheless. Um, uh, so this was an influence. This was certainly an influence, the whole tall tale myth. And if you think about like what is Conan, he's sort of a tall tale within the world of within the Hyborian age. And we'll see more of what I mean by that as we go. Um, uh, some of his other characters, Steve Costigan, his sort of boxer character, also kind of a tall tale, kind of a big, dumb galoot, but like, you know, stronger than anybody else there's a character called solomon kane who we're going to talk about who's definitely a tall tale type character um though less humorous um they have and the kind of thing that binds them together and conan is you know ludicrously superhuman qualities and and this wild evocative imagery like it's the 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 premise is always paid off they're this huge monstrously strong figure and that's always going to come into play right and and people love that story (laughs) um this this is a good this is a good writing tip and kevin i think you'll probably agree with this um it's sort of like the Chekhov's gun thing but it's like you always got to pay off the premise like the the the, whatever the promise of that what is whatever the novelty of the setup is you gotta pay that premise you gotta pay it off i mean that's a well-known thing right and if if you do have a gun in the first act it doesn't go off it's got to be a choice Right. It's got to be very deliberate. Right. right. They do this uh, really well in season two of uh, True Detective, which I'm rewatching. Oh. The woman, the woman with the with her knife. She's got that knife and she's going to there's a they have a conversation 
uh, with the she and the other detective uh, mm, oh. in season two are talking about how a, how a man can always overpower and kill a woman with it with his bare hands. She's like, that's why I've got this knife. Any man who tries to do that to me is going to get it. And then mm-hmm. in one episode, there's a moment where she takes it out and you kind of think she's going to use it during the big shootout. And then she mm-hmm. finally ends up using it in that gnarly like uh, sex party scene. And it's mm-hmm. like, it pays off so totally. You're like, you know, right. it's coming and then it happens right. and you go, Oh my God, right. she did it. Right. Yeah. It's right. crazy. Right. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. So yeah. I, but that's so true about writing. I mean, and that's the first, the first third of the book, the rest of the book just has to unwind whatever you've set up. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. 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 Not basically, yeah. but like, well, you do, yeah. you do need to do people, that. <laughs> people expect it. And, and you know, and I yeah. think a lot of like young writers or a lot of like uh, people who are new to it kind of go, oh, I'll break the rules. And it's like, right. no, you fucking won't. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, yeah. no, you won't. Yeah. Try, we've been doing this for yeah, thousands no, of years, try, bro. Try Just playing by like... the rules first. And then, and <laughs> yes, then you exactly. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Did you see if you could follow the rules first? Yeah. Try that. Right. And then. Yeah. See if you can yeah. Do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. It's tough. Tell that to some 23 year old though. Sure. Sure. Everybody's got everybody's got to figure it out themselves but um now when uh robert e howard is 16 um the radio comes to town this is 1922 and he actually helped bring the radio to town there was some kind of volunteer effort to like install install a radio repeater or something like that 1922 they get um they get radio and now he can get national news stories about you know politics and things and he can get sports coverage and all that kind of stuff good good deal there is a family trip to New Orleans in 1919, um, and this is a doctor. His, his father is going to take a seven-week supplemental course, um, something about getting ghosts out of somebody's uh, somebody's chest cavity. I, I don't know what it was about. I say. Yeah, yeah. Bloodletting <laughs> in you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, interestingly, though, so think about this, too. They live in the middle of Texas, right? middle kind of middle of nowhere they live in this little town and they go to they go to new orleans to do this um to do this supplemental course that's the big city man this is a big oh, yeah. deal Robert still Howard's never been to a big, yeah mm-hmm. it's crazy right people still flock there great and town as soon as they get there kevin you probably know a little bit about this story it's right in the middle of the famous new orleans axe murders do you know about these at all uh I, I, I believe it or not i don't yeah so there was this period in 1919 where there were those axe murderer. Well, I think I think the thing I'm going to read actually describes it. Um, God, man, this episode was, is making me hungry. The axe murder doesn't have anything to do with it. We're talking about Bubba, <laughs> talking right. about cannibalism. Right. We're talking about axe murder, but the food in New Orleans, my God, yeah. yes, very good. So, <clears throat> quote: This is a this is a letter from Robert. E. I think this is the letter from Robert e. Howard. Yeah, yeah, this is the letter from Robert e. Howard talking about the axe murders. Quote, the axe man had butchered an entire family, hacked a young man and his wife to death, though they eventually recovered and killed their baby, a child of only a few months. This crime was the seventh or eighth of the sort committed within the last year. The victims had usually been Italian and, strange coincidence, had usually occupied the rears of corner grocery stores. The details of the crimes were usually the same. The murderer or murderers had chiseled out a panel of the door, reached through and sprung the catch, then entered and slain the victims with an atch, hatchet, or meat cleaver, usually using whatever they found in the victim's house and leaving the bloodstained implement as mute evidence of ruthlessness. Oh, I knew there was a lot of anti-Italian bias, but I didn't realize there was axe murder levels. I knew there were like lynchings and things. Uh, yeah, and of, of I don't Italians even. Or hangings I'm not even or sure if it's necessarily like, it, I mean, it could have just been happening in an Italian neighborhood and not necessarily been, you know, it's, mm. it, without yeah. having found the person and the only evidence, it's hard to sure. say what sure, sure. motivations were, right? 
Um, but yeah, right. Well, imagine- sometimes sometimes axe murder is its own reward. We know that. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you just want to fucking apparently, apparently. Yeah. Um, but but you know, it, it is it is interesting that Robert E. Howard never really left small town Texas. Shows up in New Orleans, and the news is just that like there is a mysterious axe murderer out there just chopping people to pieces. Like that's yeah. crazy. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and that's you have to tough. imagine that's influential too on a guy who wrote some sure. of the most violent stories you're ever going to read. Certainly this was an evocative image. I mean, when this happened, he was 13 years old. That's young boy, like Dude. territory, right? How did yeah. I not hear about this? Yeah. The ax, the ax man of new Orleans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let me ask yeah. you a question. <laughs> six dead, six injured. Oof. Mm-hmm. Damn dude. Crazy. Okay. They never All caught right. the person or anything. I don't think. Yeah. Okay. I did not yeah, but know. See, again, this. back back then, the detective work again was just like, well, the, the, well he said he didn't do it, so I guess he didn't. <laughs> well, you know, and this is a town too where if you want to be a spooky detective, you you got so many tarot readers and astrologists right. and right. just these. Right. Right. That's all you do. Mm-hmm. You just go help me yeah. find that axe man. Well, that's stare right. into my stare into my crystal ball. Damn, yeah. dude. <laughs> Yeah, it seems like there should have been a movie made about this. Yeah, uh, should be. maybe there is. I don't know. Maybe there is. Yeah, so. I've come across this story before for whatever <laughs> reason. Um, now there's another thing that's an influence. So what I'm kind of trying to do is tell you what some of the influences of Robert E. Howard are. Another big one is just Texas history. You got to think, like, you know, not that long ago. Forget about what you think is right or wrong, but the the truth is, not that long ago, if you were living in Texas. Not that long ago from Robert E. Howard's time. If you were living in Texas, you were probably fighting natives, right? Like it was violent and scary and mysterious in some ways. This is like, undis- you know, it's frontier effectively, right? So that stuff's not that long. That's not that far back for, for Robert E. Howard. To be entirely so honest, like in terms of the whole of history, it's really not that far back now. No, it's not. No, not really. Yeah. yeah. You know, we like to, mm-hmm. one of the reasons America seems to want to sell, accelerate so fast is mm-hmm. to shove that down as hard as possible because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. it's frightening. Yeah. If Robert E. Howard were still alive, he wouldn't be even 120 years old yet. Right. Which, you know, that's okay. That's not that far. That's not, that. that's a very old person right <laughs> one very old person away so yeah this stuff isn't that long in the past and definitely wasn't for him this was like recent new you know you would have known people who fought who fought the tribes right um okay so and because of this i'm going to talk about my favorite robert e howard story uh favorite conan story i should say this is called beyond the black river and i talked about this a little bit but let's let's talk about a little bit more detail so this comes out in 1935 Two issues of weird tales. We've got Conan as effectively a mercenary on the frontier of Aquilonia. Aquilonia is the 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 the, the peak civilization of the Hyborian Age, the most powerful kingdom. Um, and while eventually Conan will be the king of Aquilonia in the Conan lore, this story takes place long before that time. So Conan is sort of associated with this Fort Tuscaline right on the Black River. This is the frontier province just on the other side of the river of the picked picked lands. And and for for Howard, the picks are P-I-C-T, which were a real people. Um, the picks represent um, just general barbarism. 
right? There's, this is this is who this is who your barbarian is. They're always there, uh, and we'll talk more about the the history of the Hyborian Age later. But just know that these are like the savages. Um, um, uh, now, in this frontier fort is very important for the Aquilonian kingdom. You know, overall strength and economic vitality and stability and all of these things, and yet. There's something coming out. It seems to be something coming out of the black uh, beyond the Black River, and it's this and, and killing people. And it's this Pictish wizard, rabble rouser, and militia leader named Zogar Sag, who also has a relationship, um, some kind of relationship with a swamp demon. Okay, now Conan. This story is told through mostly through the eyes of this young guy Balthus, who's sort of watching Conan and going along with him. Conan leads a kind of delta force out into beyond the Black River to see if he could take out Zogar Sag, right? Um, um, everybody dies in this party except for Conan, Balthus, our storyteller who got left behind in a canoe, um, and one other guy. And they they get uh, Balthus and the other guy, they get brought to this like deep forest ritual where Zogar Sag is rounding up the scattered tribes, the scattered Pictus tribes for um an attack on the fort and he's performing some kind of ritual sacrifice of of conan's men um i'm gonna just read you some bits of this yeah this is uh, one of those see. names where it's like your name is your destiny you give a child the name zogar they're gonna end up in the <laughs> forest performing <laughs> a ritual that's right that's right yeah 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 call so, it look. aptonym yeah, that's a word right. I learned on Art of Darkness. Hey, we all we all learn a little bit on Art of Darkness. Yeah. Uh, okay, so now let me read a little. I'm, I'm going to read a little bit of this, but this is like this, in my opinion, is this is like as good as Robert E. Howard gets. Like, I I I, I was having a good time reading this story. <clears throat> so again, out in a dark forest ritual, he's got the 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 pers- the point of view character like tied to a stake or something. Quote, <clears throat> a tense silence reigned as Zogar Sag turned toward the forest, raised on his tiptoes and sent a weird inhuman call shuddering out into the night. Somewhere far out in the black forest, a deeper cry answered him. Balthus shuddered. From the timber of that cry, he knew it never came from a human throat. He remembered what uh, Volanus had said, that Zogar boasted that he could summon wild beasts to do his bidding. The woodsman was livid beneath his mask of blood. He licked his lips spasmodically. The village held its breath. Zogar Sag stood still as a statue, his plumes trembling faintly about him, but suddenly the gate was no longer empty. A shuddering gasp swept over the village, and men crowded hastily back, jamming each other between the huts. Balthus felt the short hair stir on his scalp. The creature that stood in the gate was like the embodiment of nightmare legend. Its color was of a curious pale quality, which made it seem ghostly and unreal in the dim light. But there was nothing unreal about the low-hung savage head and the great curved fangs that glistened in the firelight. A noiseless padded feet, it approached like a phantom out of the past. It was the survival of an older, grimmer age, the ogre of many an ancient legend. It was a saber-toothed tiger. No Hyborian hunter had looked upon one of these primordial brutes for centuries. Immemorial myths lent the creatures a supernatural quality induced by their ghostly color and their fiendish ferocity. The beast that glided toward the men on the stakes was longer and heavier than a common striped tiger, almost as bulky as a bear. Its shoulders and forelegs were so massive and mightily muscled as to give it a curiously top-heavy look. 
though its hindquarters were more powerful than those of a lion. Its jaws were massive, but its head was brutishly shaped. Its brain capacity was small. It had room for no instincts except those of destruction. It was a freak of carnivorous development, evolution run amuck in a horror of fangs and talons. This was the monstrosity Zogar Sag had summoned out of the forest. Balthus no longer doubted the actuality of the shaman's magic. Only the black arts could establish a domination over that tiny-brained, mightily-thewed monster. Like a whisper at the back of his consciousness rose the vague memory of the name of an ancient, ancient god of darkness and primordial fear to whom once both men and beasts bowed and whose children, men whispered, still lurked in dark corners of the world. New horror tinged the glare he fixed on Zogar Sag. The monster moved past the heap of bodies and the pile of gory heads without appearing to notice them. He was no scavenger. He hunted only the living in a life dedicated solely to slaughter. An awful hunger burned greenly in the wide, unwinking eyes. The hunger not alone of belly emptiness, but the lust of death-dealing. His gaping jaws slavered. The shaman stepped back. His hand waved toward the woodsman. So anyway, this is... There's some alliteration in there that I would edit out, but at the yeah. same time, no, not my yeah. job. Like right. it's actually pretty awesome. That one line about the mighty muscle mar or whatever it is. <laughs> right, I actually right, remember right. like, it's like, yeah. wow, dude, it goes so hard. That's, you know, that's, that's the thing. What I like, what I love about it is like, in some ways it's not for me in some right. ways, I'll, I'll be honest with you. But like another way, it's like, Robert E. Howard commits to the bit so hard, you have to kind of respect it, right? There's no like, there's no wink, like, of like, we're this is kind of a joke. It's like, mm -hmm. no, this is a jungle ritual where we're calling ancient monsters out of the, you know, like, we're not, <laughs> I, there's, there's no irony. None of it, there's, there's not a single, sh sh in, in any of the Conan stuff, there's not even like a little tinkling of irony. And I kind of love that in a way. Um, yeah, it's dripping yeah. with power. It's like, I'm just mm -hmm. going to throw every word and I'm not going to pull any punches. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right, right, right. <laughs> yes, it's yeah. metal. It's metal, yeah. dude. It is metal. Yeah. And so so in that story, like, yeah, this this wizard, he calls forth a saber-toothed tiger and then he calls forth this huge snake, like a giant It makes me snake. feel like I'm like 14. It's like big 14-year-old yeah. boy energy, it right? Yeah. Totally is. Yeah, yeah. totally is. That's yeah, and then the big snake shows up and Conan like bursts out of the woods with a huge sword and he's just chopping the head off and every single conan Rocks. story somebody gets their skull split so conan brings the sword right down their middle and it's always like cuts down to the breastbone it's just like it's <laughs> incredible yeah. not yeah i think around. i think in addition to the i the irish uh robert e howard is the one you know freud there was nothing freud could have done with him <laughs> right <laughs> You can't yeah. psychoanalyze this guy. No, no, no. no. Um, <laughs> <Maybe>. <laughs> you can try, but I think yeah. you're probably going to end up in a world of hurt. That's right. That's right. Um, you know, it, it's so Robert E. Howard, he writes a bunch of different kinds of stuff. So, you know, he writes his Conan stories and he writes he writes that stuff. Towards the end of his career, he was focusing more and more and, and thought that he might turn entirely to writing Westerns. Um, it, it was sort of, a, he started writing some of his first stories were Westerns and then he does this whole arc and it was at the end, he seemed like he was going to be writing Westerns again. And in fact, he, he wrote a bunch of Westerns. One of the best for people out there who wants to read a Western is this, uh, story from 1932 called the horror from the mound. 
And in that story, Robert E. Howard basically invents the genre of of the weird Western. It's it's Cthulhu. It's like Lovecraft, but in the Wild West. Um, it's quite good. It's scary. It's weird. It's different. Um, you might, yeah. And there, and he has a few of those, but that the horror from the mound is probably the best. Um, okay. Another big influence on Robert E. Howard is the pulps. Uh, for people who don't know, let me give you just like the briefest history of pulp mag, American pulp magazines. 1882, a guy named Frank Muncie, who was a former telegraph operator in Augusta, Maine, comes to New York to get into the publishing industry, starts with the starts uh, a magazine, a children's weekly magazine called Golden Argosy. By 1896, it evolved into a monthly magazine printed on cheap paper using cheap printing processes and targeted at an adult audience with evocative fictional content. People don't know the reason it's called pulp is because you printed it on like the lowest quality paper to make it cheap uh, as opposed to the slicks harper's and the saturday evening post i think and and the uh, harp and uh, the atlantic those were the slicks these are the pulps this is the this is the garbage right this is like and, uh, and another, and another, another world <laughs> you and i were born in like 1880 and we're taking art of darkness on the road and you're slick yeah. and i'm pulp Right. Hello, hello, my lady. Hello, my dog. Yeah. Hey, come out playing good... the squeeze box. Yeah, yeah. right. You go. Yeah. <laughs> Art of Darkness live in October. Yeah. We're going to yeah, do yeah, Houdini. Yeah. Right. So get ready for that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, by 1903. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. That would be, I just love this idea of this like old timey uh, vaudeville act, pulp and slick. <laughs> Like a literary, literary vaudeville act. Right. <laughs> like Telling has a stories. monocle. He thinks he's yeah, fancy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah pulp, see, a child looking. Yeah. See. Yeah. Mm, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, by 1903, Frank Muncy's Argosy magazine had a circulation of 500,000. Um, mar- this market grew rapidly and expanding into quote unquote spicy love stories, detectives, westerns, war fiction, eventually speculative fiction and fantasy. Uh, this latter and no small fantasy, the the prominent the eventual prominence of fantasy was in no small part due to Robert E. Howard's contribution. Um, eventually, out of this pulp milieu, you get what we think of as comic books with The Shadow, uh, a detective magazine. Um, coming out in oh I didn't note the year but but there's a lineage to all of this stuff right um, by the time Howard was becoming a writer there were a bunch of pulp options um, and I'm going to read a little bit from this great Mark Finn biograph uh, biography Blood and Thunder about that um, yeah so let's see <laughs> quote. The mag- these magazines, the, the pulps, were a direct descendant of the so-called dime novels, those quaint Victorian publications, often about real-life people and incidents, publications that were f- more filled with lurid purple prose than actual fact. Be that as it may, the pulp, pulp market was huge, a thriving enterprise that started in the late twe- teens and early 1920s, survived the Great Depression and World War II until it was eventually overthrown by the paper book, paperback book market. Were the pulps violent? Some were. Were they badly written? There were some atrocious writers, sure, but the industry that produced such appalling dreck also gave us authors like Dashiell Hammett, uh, Raymond Chandler, Harold Lamb, Edgar Wallace, Edgar Wallace, Tennessee Williams, Elmore Leonard, Robert Block, Richard Matheson, Philip K. Dick, Louis Lamore, Ray Bradbury, Horace McCoy, David Goodis, uh, Cornell Woolrich, Fritz Lieber, Edgar Rice Burroughs, Clark Ashton Smith, Smith, H.P. Lovecraft, and of course, Robert E. Howard. 
The pulps were a cultural artifact of the populist movement with their egalitarian treatment of their readers, their focus on meat and potatoes entertainment, free of any high-handed notions of society or style, and their economic value. They were an American institution, one that is largely responsible for our contemporary American literary voice. And that last part, I think, is very true. Um, yeah, I think uh, there is a certain... I mean, our movie, most of our movie... like. Hollywood, most of the Hollywood movies are effectively pulp. They're in the lineage of 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 this kind of storytelling. Um, the big tentpole, you know, comic book and action movies are all come from from American pulp. That yeah, you genre. think about you think about Jaws. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. You think about it, Alien, mm -hmm. Indiana Jones. Yeah. 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 They're all they're all kind of pulp. And and that's not saying they're bad. It's not necessarily saying they're good either. It's just that's that's the sort of that's the style of them. Yeah. Yeah. Even yeah. something like Blue Velvet is a little pulpy. Pulpy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So, okay. So Howard becoming a writer, Robert E. Howard becoming a writer. He writes his first real story at the age of 15. And this is a story called Big Smalley and the Power of the Eye about two Canadian hunters and their humorous struggle to construct a bear trap. <laughs> I just think that's a funny, it's a funny conceit. Um, he, he often, he often wrote humor too. Like a lot of his story, a lot of the stories he sold were, um, were comic. Um, uh, oh, I already, I already read that part. So, okay. Fast forward a little bit. 1922, uh, Robert E. Howard has to change schools. And the reason for this is that the Cross Plains, uh, high school only went up through the 10th grade. I don't know they didn't have enough people they didn't have the resources or what but he has to move to nearby brownwood about 35 miles to the south and his mother comes with him it's yeah. gonna be not enough people probably that's yeah yeah, yeah. they would and there was yeah they would consolidate into the high school from different right. communities yeah right right yeah so they moved to nearby Brownwood. His mother comes with him. So it's like he rents a little house in Brownwood or whatever while he goes to school. But here in Brownwood um he meets two friends brownwood's a little bit bigger city or, or bigger town and while he had friends in cross plains here he meets people who also are into books for the first time we're into philosophy who read a little bit and that's that's a that's an interesting experience for a young boy when you, you you've been kind of alienated from everybody around you and then you then you run into somebody who's into some of the same stuff you are that's like a big deal right and you're you know it's, it's, uh junior in high school um and, you know, very quickly, he's starts getting his stories, Howard does, in the Tattler, which is the Brownwood High School's newspaper. He wins a contest with two stories, called one called Golden Hope Christmas and another called West is West, which is a, a humorous Western uh, of which he wrote many. Uh, one of these friends that he makes is this guy, Tevis Clyde Smith, who um, has a small printing press. Um, and he turns out uh, he's part of the something called the Lone Scout Organization, which apparently was like a spinoff of the Boy Scouts. And it was designed for the rural community. So like boys could be Lone Scouts by themselves, obviously. And like you're like a Boy Scout by correspondence almost. It's it's <laughs> like the solo poly of Boy Scouting. <laughs> right, right. There you go. That's fair. Yeah, but that's yeah. fair. I mean, if you if you don't have it, that is rather sad, though, isn't it? It is. A that is bit. rather yeah. sad. But you're I mean, I, get, but, yeah. but you're trying to give a give a young man something and maybe he doesn't have a troop that he can be part of. Fair yeah. enough. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, if Art of Darkness fails, dude, I'm going to be a Lone Scout podcasting. <laughs> it's going to be real right. sad. <laughs> Hello? Is this the guy? <laughs> 
Yeah. Is there anybody <laughs> out there? As the man uh, said. <laughs> yeah. Now, <laughs> um, he, uh, there's also, I want to talk at this point, I do want to talk about Robert E. Howard's, I think he had like graphomania or hypographia. Um, in that's addition- coming over with the writing. That yeah. really is. I mean, and mm-hmm. listen, that's if you're affected by that, being a pulp author in the 30s oh, and yeah. 40s is that's where you want to be. That's uh, lean into it. Yeah. But didn't yeah. didn't uh, LRH LRH peace be upon yeah. him? Uh, yeah. He was also gra- like a graphic yeah. maniac, and he wrote for the pulps too, didn't he? He did. Yeah, he did. He wasn't yeah. on that list you read earlier. You left. No, it I think I, I think you know he might. Who knows? It's better to just not mention him. I think sure you sure. (laughs) Yeah. Now, so in addition to all these stories he wrote all, you know, this is these two books I have are probably an eighth of everything Robert E. Howard wrote something like that. Um, He also wrote um, over 800 poems in his lifetime. And we're not going to spend a lot of time reading the poetry, but I I thought I would read one just so you can hear it. See what a Robert E. Howard poem is like. And this does, is probably uh, one of the better ones. Does uh, does uh, Conan cleave someone's head in twain <laughs> in every poem? Yeah. No, I should. That'd be awesome. It is all end with that. What it's, it's like, like about, he, doesn't matter what he it's just about. seems like he achieves like a postmodern meta commentary on right. yeah. something. That, that would be yeah. pretty good. Is this that like would be any poem, idea. no matter what it's about. It's a love poem. It's a nature poem. Whatever it is, it ends with Conan leaping, leaping out. And cleaving someone's skull to the breastbone. That, that's a hundred percent something you could submit to Apocalypse <laughs> Confidential. They would print the shit out they of that. They should. Yeah. <laughs> Free ideas for yeah, everyone. That's right. So this is a this is a this is a poem called uh, "The Ghost Kings." Uh, quote: The ghost kings are marching. The midnight knows their tread from the distant, stealthy planets of the deem of the dim, unstable dead. There are whisperings on the night winds, and the shuddering stars have fled. A ghostly trumpet echoes from a barren mountain head. Through the fen, the wandering witch lights gleam like phantom arrows sped. There's silence in the valleys, and the moon is rising red. The ghost kings are marching down the ages' dusty maze. The unseen feet are tramping through the moonlight's pallid haze, down the hollow, clanging stairways of a million yesterdays. The ghost kings are marching where the vague moon vapor creeps, while the night wind to their coming like a thunderous herald sweeps. They are clad in ancient grandeur, but the world unheeding sleeps. So, um, that's a Robert E. Howard poem. He wrote eight, more than 800 of them. Um, All right. All right. Yeah. Poetry's a good uh, thing. You got, you got writer's block. You're trying to figure something out. Good place mm-hmm. to kind of fall mm-hmm. back on. And obviously, that's uh, that isn't meant to diminish the craft of poetry. Like, serious sure. poets are yeah. Yeah. the greatest writers, uh, really. And, Indeed. Uh, but yeah. Hmm. Cool. Yeah. Um, in May of 1923, he graduates from high school, and there's a bit of uncertainty about what he's going to do. Um, but Howard knew that the only thing we were really interested in him was writing. And, you know, he's already refining the themes that he would he would work the rest of his career um and in in a big part of like the theme what is the theme of robert he howard's work and you might think with a pulp writer cranking this kind of stuff out that there really isn't one but i think in robert e. howard's case there is and for robert e. howard it's a sort of a dreamlike recapitulation of history not idealizing things not you know whatever the opposite of idealizing things is but using the shape of history to articulate 
I think, something about human nature. I think this is what he was actually trying to do. Um, and let me read you a little bit about um, his vision of history. Um, I think this is interesting. Um, this is, uh, he wrote this in a letter to um, Tevis Clyde Smith. <laughs> um, yeah, <clears throat> quote. Rome spread her, and he wrote this, I think, when he was, in, I think he wrote this in 1923, so he's like 18 years old. Quote, Rome spread her empire across the world, then she became dissolute, debauched, and the barbarians drove in. The tribesmen of Genseric, of Attila, of Alaric raided, looted in the very streets of Rome. Cathay was the mightiest nation of Asia, then she forgot her skill in war for debauchery, and the Mongols swarmed across the Great Wall, and Genghis Khan rode his horse into the palace of the emperor. The nations of Central Asia had become effeminate and rich and proud. The Tartars came from the northern steppes and Tamerlane built his mighty empire over their ruins. When India turns from war to trade and becomes debauched, the wild tribesmen of Afghanistan come down the Khyber Pass with torch and sword. When a nation forgets her skill in war, when her religion becomes a mockery, when the whole nation becomes a nation of money grabbers, then the wild tribes, the barbarians, drive in. Who will our invaders be? From whence will they come? Where but from Asia? Can a nation ally the Tartars, the Mongols, the Indians, the tribes of Asia? And he goes on from there. But this is that meme that's like, uh, what is it? Uh, good time. What is it? Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. Weak men create bad times. That's great. Hard like, times. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. that's Robert E. Howard's would I would say Robert E. Howard would see that and nod his head. Right. Um, and he was constantly concerned that society would allow itself to devolve. And then as it devolved a force, a people who were perhaps less sophisticated, but hadn't forgotten the, the physical gritty reality of being, you know, living things would, would sweep in and take over from them. Um, comes up in his stories all the time. It's the story of the Hyborian age and, and it's, you know, what he is probably the thing he was most paranoid about happening. Um, now, I think according to Mark, uh, Mark Finn, the guy who writes this, you know, he kind of phrases this as like, well, there's a lot going on in Robert E. Howard's sort of adolescence and in the 1920s that might make a person feel this way. You know, he lists off, you know, the fact that World War One had basically just happened. Robert E. Howard was too young to to, to go. Um, but there's the Bolshevik revolution is going on. India was being decolonized. There was a depression in Europe. Eventually there'd be a depression in the United States. Um, you know, Mark Finn makes the point that Robert E. Howard may have seen himself as living in something like the end times, even though in his little town of Texas, that's not necessarily happening. Um, so he writes this letter. He's a, he's a Kali Yuga bro. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. And and he writes this letter, and we're going to talk more about this story he mentions in the After Dark, because I, I don't want to spend a ton of time in, on this, but I also don't want to skip it. And I want to keep in mind, he's 18 when he writes this. Okay. Um, Precocious. He's yeah. got a lot of big ideas already. Yeah. He says, quote, I shall write a story entitled The Last Man as a warning to the white races. Oh, If the West falls before the East, it won't be because I haven't warned the white races. So now he's he's drawing on another theme that we've talked about through uh, uh, Shelley, the last man, 
That's yes. that's an old motif going back. Okay, so he's yeah. so he so you're telling me he's concerned about the white races uh, having uh, being being overrun by uh, by people. Okay, mm-hmm. and he's corresponding with H.P. Uh, Lovecraft too. Um, eventually he is at okay. this point. And what, 18, and what year not. is this? What year is this? That he's 18, this would be 1923, 1923, okay. 24. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, and here's, here's kind of, I, I want to kind of color this in. So I think, I think it's fair to say from that time that he's 18 years old, his ideas fundamentally don't change, but I think he becomes a lot more sophisticated. And I think his understanding of race at the age of 17 or 18 was his touch points were, this is a place that Europeans fought a pitched battle with the native tribes. There were countless race riots in Texas, including in the time of Robert E. Howard's cognizance. Um, There were Mexican raids on border towns all the time. Um, There was something called the San Diego plan. Are you familiar with the San Diego plan, Kevin? Sounds like a funk band from yeah. The Google, 70s. Google the Google the San Diego plan. Really the quick. San Diego plan. Yeah, okay. yeah. It's in, it's interesting. I didn't I didn't know anything about this thing before, but yeah. So, so like my point is not to not to run cover for any of this stuff. But uh, what I want what you want to understand is Robert E. Howard is a very parochial parochial provincial young man in the 1920s who had some fairly un fairly lunk-headed notions about race when he was a young man fair enough but also yeah. standard for the day and not unrecognizable mm-hmm. in terms of today's discourse so right. let's not act like we're yeah. shocked or no uh taken aback by right. this kind of language because w- people are literally still having the same conversation today yeah 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 exactly exactly. here we are yeah yeah and and you know by 1929 uh what six years later he's writing stories like skull face in which the white europeans are cave dwelling savages and the atlanteans the the sophisticated people are brown-skinned right most of his villains are white europeans fundamentally um you know i think yeah, I think it's more about for him. It's more about barbarism versus civilization than it really is about race versus race. Um, and so, yeah. Anyway, um, there is one little bit I want to read on this. Did you pull up the San Diego plan? Yeah. What is the San Diego plan? You want me to read a little bit about sure, this? Yeah. 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 The, the interesting pl- little historical note. The plan of San Diego, and here I'm going to work on my Spanish. Yes. Plan de San Diego. <laughs> was a, a plan how did i do i nailed it right that was great um, yeah yeah um, well, i think I, san diego I, stands for a whale something a whale's vagina something uh, what isn't that from the uh, anchorman oh god yeah. <laughs> he says something on a date will ferrell's character says something on a date she's like do you know what san diego means uh, okay anyway yeah sorry. very good Didn't yeah mind. anchorman's classic yeah. uh it was a plan drafted in san diego texas in 1915 by a group of unidentified mexican and tejano rebels who hoped to seize arizona new mexico california and texas tejas from the united mm-hmm. states the plan was never attempted it called for a general uprising in February of 1915 and the assassination of every non-Hispanic Caucasian male over 16 years of age. The mm-hmm. arena included all of South Texas. Germans were excluded from the killing. Wunderbar. The, the San Diego 
land collapsed. Well, we, of course, we because we know German German Americans aren't white. <laughs> well, I well Robert E. Howard is Irish. He wasn't at this time either. Well, uh, yeah, right. Yeah. That's so funny. Yeah. I love this. It's like we're gonna get all of the white people except the Krauts. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, who knows? I mean, it, it, this appears to be real, uh, it, but it, it was never okay. I mean, it never happened, obviously, but it was a plan. But fascinating. Yeah, yeah. So that would Very have been that would have been like okay. a big news story at sure like, when Robert E. Howard's a kid. Right. Yeah, that'd make you a little yeah. paranoid. You might you might start going around with Lederhosen. Right, right, right. So, yeah, exactly. So, you know, yeah. it's the Passover yeah. blood is you just start eating sauerkraut and yeah, uh, yeah, maybe drinking yeah. a little more. Let me let me read a quick poem about from Robert E. Howard. This is written, I think, in 1925. <clears throat> Quote, the day that I die, shall the sky be clear and the east sea wind blow free, sweeping along with its rover's song to bear my soul to sea. They will carry me out of the bamboo hut to the driftwood piled on the lee. And yea, that name me in after years, this shall ye say of me, that I lived to a straight and simple creed, the whole of my worldly span, white or black or yellow I dealt, for square with my fellow man. So, anyway. Okay. So it wouldn't be until 1924 that Howard would sell a story first to Weird Tales. And this is a story called Spear and Fang, which is a paleolithic action adventure story about a Cro-Magnon man fighting a Neanderthal over, they're fighting over a beautiful cave woman. Uh, he would be paid on publication. Weird Tales, Barnesburg Wright would say, yep, I want your story. We'll pay you when it shows up in the magazine. And then sometimes... A month would go by, sometimes a year would go by, um, which is a very unstable way to try to make a living as a writer. But when has it ever been stable for a writer to try to make a living? Uh, in, in the meantime, after high school, um, Robert E. Howard's working a variety of jobs. He works for a tailor. He heaves freight at the train depot. He hauls a survey rod. He acquires news for an oil, biz, uh, an oil business column for the local paper. He ends up going to Howard Payne Business School in Brownwood, um, in June of 1924 to take classes as a stenographer. Um, uh, anyway, he sold, oh, I should have said this before, but he sold his first story for uh, Spear and Fang for about $250 in today's dollars. Um, but by late 1925, he's making more than $1,000 a story in today's dollars for selling to Weird, weird Tales. And when you can crank out a couple short stories a week the way he could, that's not too shabby, right? Um, so anyway, this this kind of process, he's, he's doing stenography and various odd jobs, goes on until, and publishing the occasional story, goes on until 1926 when he takes a job at the drugstore. For people who don't know, like classic Americana, the drugstore was not only where you went and got your, your prescriptions filled, that's where you hung out. You went and you got a soda, sat at the soda fountain. He was a soda jerk. He was the head soda jerk, in fact. Um, and he was making... Uh, Pretty good scratch. He was making $1,400 a week in today's dollars, but he was also working seven days a week and his writing ground to a halt uh, in 1926. So now we've got much money from jerking soda. Jerking the soda. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, Gracious. I think, just means you're just filling soda. You're just pulling the soda. You're just sure. jerking. Yeah. You're yeah. just making, giving people their, their soda yeah. pop. That's what I'm saying. That's, that's pretty good money. That's that. that's very good money. There's a lot of people right now who'd be happy to bring in fourteen hundred yeah. a week. Yeah. Now we're working yeah. six or seven days a week. That's tough, but fair, still, fair enough. Fair still enough. Still, the check's coming in. You know. There you go. 
Um, okay, so I want to give you a little bit of a, let's give it a little bit of a better, now we, we got full-grown adult Robbie Howard, let's get a little bit better picture of him. Um, he's a pretty well-read guy, especially by small-town Texas 1920s standards. He's probably, the, he's probably the best read guy in town, I would say, that's probably fair. Um, you can see in some of the stuff I already read that he's got a lot of historical knowledge, right? Um, uh, um, he also has, he's also kind of sensitive as other, right? A, a man who wrote 800 poems might be a little on the sensitive side. Uh, <laughs> he also very much struggled to take orders from people. Um, this is why he didn't last very long at many jobs. He just didn't like being told what to do. Who does? Um, he liked to box recreationally. He started, he started boxing pretty, like pretty frequently. It was like his main hobby was boxing. He would just especially when he's working at the drugstore, he would work all day and then he would go down to the ice house and he would just get into like some kind of semi-formalized punch-up with somebody. Um, and to get better at boxing, he would work out. Um, and his exercise regime would be like chopping firewood, um, hitting tires with sledgehammers. We've since returned to this kind of thing in some quarters of the fitness community. Um, he also apparently had sleepwalking incidents. And I'm going to read a little bit on that because it's kind of interesting. Um, <clears throat> uh, quote, Robert took a trip to Brownwood in late April or early May. I think this is 1926. Yeah, 1926. And he spent the night with his friend Clyde Smith. That night, Robert had one of his sleepwalking incidents. Robert's terrified screams woke the whole house. Smith, groggy, opened his eyes to find Robert grappling with a large shape and thinking an intruder was in the house jumped in to help. Before he could do anything, Robert would he went headlong out the closed window through the screen. The Smith family had found Robert outside wandering around, apparently dazed. Smith had been uh, told previously what to do by Robert in the event that a sleepwalking incident happened. Talk to Robert until he fell back asleep. Once Robert closed his eyes again, Smith woke his friend up. Robert started, Robert started awake. I'm glad you woke me, he said. I dreamed I, was in, I saw a newspaper and the headline said, Axe Murderer Slays Three. When Smith told him what had happened, Robert said, I'm glad you couldn't get to me. I have the strength of a goddamn ape when I'm in the middle of one of these nightmares. Robert suffered cuts on his face and a deep gash in his arm. Smith's mother recalled that Robert had let out the most chilling scream she had ever heard. Dave Lee, another of Robert's friends from Cross Plains, also confirmed, Ro confirmed Robert's nocturnal struggles in an interview with uh, Howard Waldrop. Quote, Robert would tie his right hand to the bed because he had violent dreams and would wake up swinging. So, yeah. Um, and in addition to all of these things, Robert E. Howard had a bit of a morbid sensitivity or a morbid streak. And here's a letter he wrote. He had a bit of a misunderstanding with one of his friends over a girl. Not quite a fight, but almost. And uh, it led to... Uh, well, he kind of explains the pertinent part in this letter, I think. Mm. Uh, yeah. Yeah, let me just read this. <sighs> yeah, okay. So he, he um, what, how does this work? To kind of mess with his friend, he started kind of flirting with this girl that his friend was interested in. But he, uh, Howard didn't expect the girl to be like also interested in Howard. So it started as kind of like a joke, apparently. And then the girl was into it. And so it got some feelings were hurt and there was some confusion about what had happened. And then Robert made some dramatic claims about things. And this is where this letter picks up. 
uh, quote, now I have like a blind fool outraged friendship and trampled on the souls of the best two friend, friends a man ever had. So I sat and thought and the lights went out over town. The raucous rab rabble in the streets sank and vanished. Still I sat and even money crazed, oil crazed speculators staggered home to bed. I sat and thought. My thoughts ran. Shall I live and continue to be a failure to grind my life out at last pass on a failure among failures or... I shall never, I really never expected to leave the office when I entered it alive. I sat and the night passed and cold sweat stood upon my forehead as I fought my silent battle. Something kept whispering over my shoulder. Come, take a chance. You're a born failure. You lost the game before you saw it. The cards were stacked against you before you sat in the game. You're a damned fool and shall never be anything else. Now you've probably ruined a girl's life and that of your best friend. A great thing. You'll never win. It's no disgrace to take a flop when you're hung on the ropes and know you're licked. And you know it. You won't admit it, but you know it. For the first time, you're ready to admit it. What's the use of all this? You shall be mine eventually. You are only dust and dust is your eventual destiny. Why delay? Why drag out a few more years? Come. Fool them all and step out of the game. Why stay with this torture of life any longer? Come, you are licked and may as well admit it. I have no fear of the hereafter. An orthodox hell could hardly be more torture than my life has been. I got so far along that I was chuckling with a ghastly humor as I thought what a hell of a jolt the man who opened the law office next morning would get. So he's describing sitting in his office and thinking about offing himself, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sheesh. Yeah. And, and he's... Uh, Using boxing metaphor too. Right, right, uh, right. I'm licked. You're licked. You're up against yeah. the ropes, kid. Yeah, just, yeah, throw in the towel. Yeah. One thing held me back. No high and noble resolve. No wish to make myself better for what I've tried again and again and failed. One thing, the vicious stubbornness that won't let me admit defeat. To have done what I considered would have been to admit that I was licked. I felt licked all right, but stubbornly despised to admit it. And actually, against the whole desire of my soul, that stubbornness won and sent me reeling out of the office just as dawn was breaking. I worked all that day and the next. I haven't a real job, but I don't give a damn. I've been that way before. I ate breakfast yesterday morning with the exception of some milk and a saucer of cereal. That's all I've eaten since. The two days before that, I, I ate dinner once. That may give you some idea of how I've been working. Okay. Now, at some point, Robert E. Howard can't handle this working. He's taught he can't handle like these seven days a week. And, you know, if you, if, you know, I don't know, I don't know if Kevin, you've probably been in this place. I know I've been in this place. When you're on, when all you want to do is write or create something or make something and the ideas are there and blah, working a 12 hour day for something you don't care about is kind of excruciating. <laughs> Especially day in, day out, every day. Yeah. And you're like, work, I don't work in yeah. two hours for something <laughs> you don't care about is torture. Right. It is. You gotta have buy-in. And you and you mm. have to have like I can endure a 12 hour day doing something I don't like if the end result is something that outpaces like that suffering. And if there's a light at yeah. the end of the tunnel. It's right. so funny, like now people people don't want to work anymore. And it's like, yeah, is there a light at the end of the tunnel? Right, right. Are what do they get when they? Better? Oh, yeah. what is they'll it? They'll never. Yeah. Oh, they'll never be able to buy a house. They'll so, never okay. be able to retire or buy a house. Right, right. Yeah, it's and like well, uh, and they're and they're not sure. They yeah. don't want to come into work, huh? huh yeah, that's huh. Weird. they don't want to work for fifteen an hour anymore, huh? That's crazy. You're telling me this for the first time. <laughs> right, you know, right. like holy yeah. shit. Dude. Yeah, 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 yeah. So in 1926. Howard had sold a few stories, which is a big deal. It's not like anybody else in town has ever sold a story or even try, you know, and it's on a national magazine. So it means something, even though it's not a lot of money. <clears throat> um, 
at some point, uh, and, and, you know, again, his hobbies at this point are literally working all day. And then he goes down to the ice house and gets in a fight. <laughs> kind of based. Kind of, rock, kind of rocks. Yeah, I was going to say based. Yeah. Based. Um, and that's what, you know, if this, if this podcasting thing doesn't work out, man, we can, we can move to somewhere in Texas. Right. Near Austin. It'd be like yeah. Round Rock. We'll see yeah. where we can actually what we can actually afford, afford and we yeah. will make the Robert E. Howard Gym slash lifestyle brand. There you go. Yeah, right? we yeah. start at five. We start at four forty-five every morning, right. and the first right. thing you're going to do is you're going to you're going to cleave this this watermelon <laughs> right down the middle, <laughs> right, right, and right. you're going to repeat. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. We, we, yeah, yeah. It's a whole camp. It's like a work camp for mm-hmm. young men. Who uh, you know? We got the soda jerk station. Right. It's also a restaurant, <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, yeah. Of course. <laughs> we got a little booth where you you have to like yep. every day for ninety minutes. You've got to meditate on suicide. Yeah, <laughs> and you got to you're going to write a letter. You gotta, you're going to you gotta talk yourself out of it. Yeah. I love it, dude. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's the bar- the barbarian workout lifestyle. I like it. I like dude, it, dude. You just imagine the Twitter account we get to promote that, and of course, all these guys they also have to have Twitter accounts. They got to retweet everything we tweet. Yeah, right. It's we're on our way to an epic grift. I like it. I like it. I always knew one day I'd have find my epic grift. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, anyway, he's going kind of crazy, and he strikes up a deal with his father. And his father basically says, all right, Robert, you go finish. You got to go finish your bookkeeping course at Brownwood College. And then after that, once you got that certificate in hand, I will give you a year to figure out this writing thing. I will take care of, you know, live in the house. I'll take care of you for a year and we'll see. how." And that's pretty cool, frankly. Like, that's a pretty cool thing for his dad to do. Um, Now, so... He does this. He goes to Brownwood. He's working on his bookkeeping course. He's a pretty smart guy. So like a small little school bookkeeping course literally occupies like 2% of his brain capacity, right? Like, you know, it's pretty, pretty easy. So he's also just kind of hanging out and he's writing still. So he's writing while he's, he's taking this book, bookkeeping course. Um, he does take a, 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 a trip that's kind of charming. He goes to the Miss Universe pageant in Galveston. Uh, with his friend. Apparently at this time it was known as the International Pageant of Pulchritude and Annual Bathing Girl Review. <laughs> I love it. That fucking rocks. Pulchritude? Pulchritude. Beauty. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, pulchritude. Yeah. yeah, and so you'd go down there and a woman, women would be wearing like a kind of baggy swimsuit that goes from like knee to shoulder and just woo-woo, just, you know. Getting very, getting very pumped. It yeah. sounds that sounds like a uh, white stripes bootleg. It does, it does. Album. <laughs> International pageant of pulchritude and annual bathing girl <laughs> review. It does sound like a white stripes <laughs> album. That's awesome. <laughs> fun, fun. Uh, uh, now around this time, he starts to he starts to form some additional relationship with other writers. There's a little literary newsletter he has with these guys, Herrett Priest and Booth Mooney and a couple friends he already had in which they all sort of write little sections. And mostly it's just for them. They send it around and they're kind of encouraging each other and learning from each other, little written pieces and so forth. Um, Howard is getting pretty serious as 
he's coming into his own because very shortly in 1927, before he even finishes his bookkeeping course, he writes a story called The Shadow Kingdom and single-handedly single-handedly invents the subgenre of sword and sorcery fantasy. Um now so, we're talking. That is yeah. cool. I yeah. like that phrase too, sword and sorcery. That yeah. is cool, yeah. dude. Yeah. And it yeah. makes me want to be like it makes me want to go back to the 80s and like go be in an arcade. Right, right, exactly. You know? Yeah, I love yeah. that. Like a pinball yeah, golden machine. axe. Trying to play yeah, golden go, axe. Yeah. 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 Yep. yeah, yeah. No, we can't. I don't want to kiss you. Your pulchritudinous. Yes. Uh, agreed. But I'm I'm playing sword and sorcery on the machine. <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, so let me give you a little background on this story. <clears throat> this is about a guy named Cole or Cole the Conqueror, who eventually Howard would figure out that Cole the Conqueror is like a deep, uh, like m several, many generations grandfather of Conan, but he hasn't even figured out Conan yet. Right now, it's just Cole the Conqueror. So this is Cole was born. He was a toddler when Atlantis flooded and lives for years as a feral child is eventually adopted by the Sea Mountain tribe and is later enslaved by Lemurian pirates. Um, he becomes a pirate himself and over time fights his way to the throne of Volusia, one of the most civilized kingdoms. So he's sort of a precursor to Conan. Um, doesn't have nearly as much, there's not nearly as many stories uh, about him, but um, he's coronated in this story of the Shadow Kingdom. He's coronated and he is soon aided by a picked named Brule the Spearslayer, who informs him that the nobility, the upper echelon of Volusian society, it's actually shape-shifting serpent men who rule from the shadows and disguise themselves with magic so it's washington dc it's washington dc <laughs> yeah exactly yeah yeah they're reptilians uh <laughs> Cole catches wind of this that you know he he figures out they're serpent men and through a series of bloody battles in secret passageways wrests control of Elusia from the the serpent men right um Cool. Let me read. I was going to read like a little piece of it. Let me see how long it is. Fun. Um, I might skip it. It's a, it's a cool story. Like, you know, if that's if that that appeals to you, that's pretty cool. Um, now I'm going to skip that for now, but it's very much like a Conan story, but it's like a it's like an early version of it. And, proto and proto Conan. Pro, proto Conan. And again, nobody had really quite done this. I mean, it seems sort of formulaic to us now in a way, but really he's treading new ground. Um in you know, we'd had heroic sort of fantasy before, but he brings it and it's violent, right? It's extremely gory and violent. It's heavy on the sword, heavy on the sorcery. Um, yeah, that's, that's a breakthrough. And how old is he at this point? He would have been uh, like 21. Okay. 21 All right. Old. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, now, uh, into the in these mid 20s period, there's, you know, he's 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 getting some success writing. Um, he's got. He, he has some friends of an intellectual bent, so he's got people he can talk about stories, he can talk about philosophy with, etc. Um, and he's also sort of expanding his mind. And I'm going to read a little bit about that, um, that I thought, just kind of something I thought was an interesting insight into how his mind works. <clears throat> uh, this is a letter to Clyde Smith, uh, August 26th of 1925. Quote, I've been thinking, what is reality and what is illusion? One cannot say that our thoughts are abstract and our actions concrete, for then we are reduced to the level of thoughtless machines. Do our thoughts, as soon as born, assume some unseeable and tangible yet concrete substance? Or are your thoughts really born? 
Or is it that they merely enter your mind from the outside? Is man no more than a vessel for formless yet tangible thoughts? Is it that we do not really control, think and control ourselves by our thoughts, but that some outside influence controls us? The Hindus, as you know, believe that all things are without beginning, that thoughts are but symbols, concrete evidence of past lives wandering through space, uh, uh, taking up their abode for a time in the human mind. But are thoughts either the creation of the mind or substance without beginning lasting forever, or are they influences of some higher intangible outside power? What if we, we were but puppets dancing on the strings of destiny? Okay, and then here's something a little bit more. Uh, this is about past lives. It's a little tricky to know, but I think Robert E. Howard believed in reincarnation and that he had had past lives. And I think it, this idea influenced his writing significantly. So let me just read this bit. Quote, in my former lives, I must have been a man of peace and study. The great fighters now have been fighters in other lives. Some later age and some other body, I too will be a fighter. For that, I am now building the foundation. What some may ha what some have by in subconscious instinct, I am gaining by hard work and study. I duck, guard, jab, parry, and spar mechanically, and one might say instinctively, but it is not that. It is the act of trained muscle rather than trained mind, and mind and muscle do not work in unison. But the instincts imparted to the mind in this life will go down the ages, and a thousand years from now, I, clothed in another form, may hear the cheering crowd acclaim my name, the name of a new champion. Okay. Now, after Shadow Kingdom, uh, Shadow Kingdom gets appears in Weird Tales, he makes $100 for it, which is about $1,750 in today's money. Pretty good, pretty good little payday for a short story. Uh, and it seemed like he was making good on the deal with his father, right? Your father says, hey, you got a year off to figure it out. And you're like, hey, dad, this is this is the mortgage for the month. That's pretty good, right? <laughs> um, he attempted a few more Cole the Conqueror stories, but Farnsworth Wright, the editor of Weird Tales, would not pick them up. But he soon hit upon his next hit character, and this was Solomon Kane. Kevin, does that name even ring a bell for you? It does not. Solomon no, okay. Kane. No. Yeah. Solomon Kane was Kane was a big deal. It was before Conan. So let me read a is it, let me read no, a little is it a detective? It sounds like a detective name, but no, no. It does sound like a detective name. No, not a detective. Solomon um, Kane. Yeah. Okay, quote. In Solomon Kane, we first meet the Puritan swordsman cur cursed with wanderlust who travels the globe righting wrongs and punishing the guilty. This is clearly imparted to the reader in the first few paragraphs when Kane comes upon a ransacked and burning village. He finds a single survivor, a young woman near death, who gasps out the story of the village's attack and her rape by outlaws. She dies in Cain's arms, and his pronouncement is the stuff of Howardian legend. Men shall die for this. Let me read you just a little bit more about this first story he appeared in. Cut to the brigand's lair a year later to find the remnants of the village of the Loop's gang harried and worn to a frazzle by the constant pursuit of Solomon Kane. As the pirates dither, Kane appears and slays wantonly with his rapier, and Le Loop once again escapes the retribution assigned to him. Kane follows Le Loop to Africa, and he tracks the pirate through the jungle where he is ambushed and taken prisoner. Le Loop, it seems, has become the leader of a tribe of natives who worship the Black God. Here, Solomon Cain meets Nlonga, the witch doctor, who offers to help Cain dispatch the loop. The action piles up as Nlonga's spirit animates a recently slain native who attacks the chieftain. All havoc breaks loose, and Cain is once again free to pursue the loop into the jungle. This time, the loop takes a stand, and they fight a duel in the clearing. Cain is battered, but he, of course, triumphs over the loop. So he's literally like a 
1600s or 1500s Puritan, like in the in the drawings of him and the art with, he's wearing like a pilgrim hat, and he he wanders around the world with a sword, just wreaking havoc on evildoers. <laughs> okay, I can see yeah. why that might have an appeal in, in, like the, in the American market. Yeah, people yeah. people liked it. Here's a little uh, here's a little <laughs> quote about him from Moon of Skulls. This is this is quick. Uh, about Solomon Cain. He was a man born out of time, a strange blending of Puritan and Cavalier with a touch of the ancient philosopher and more than a touch of the pagan, though the last assertion would have shocked him unspeakably. An atavist of the days of blind chivalry, he was a knight errant in somber clothes of the fanatic. A hunger in his soul drove him on and on, an urge to right all wrongs, protect all weaker things, avenge all crimes against right and justice. Um, so this is probably... Robert E. Howard's second most popular character, I would say. Um, okay, so now with Solomon Kane, which is which the fans of Weird Tales love, um, he's now a professional writer, Robert E. Howard, and he's also a very he's like the local eccentric at this time too, because again, it's a town of like full of oil men and stuff, and then like, what does the doctor's son do all day? What's he doing? What he doesn't he doesn't have a job. Like, like the, 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 there's a rumor mill about like, what's he doing in there all day long? <laughs> you know, if he's a proper son, he would, you know, he would be doing something out in the world. Sure. Didn't he used to work at the drugstore. Yeah. yeah. Used to be a jerk. Now right. he's, <laughs> now the new soda jerk is a jerk. Right. Uh, right. I, I, I was just down this rabbit hole looking up Solomon Kane. There was a 2009 film yeah. that yeah. had a $40 million budget. Max von Sydow was in it. As oh, really? Just, I, yeah, this is one of those movies, you know, how sometimes this goes around on, on Twitter. It's like one of those movies that doesn't exist right, somehow. Right, right. Like it happened. They spent $40 yeah. million. Dollars. But it was Nobody never in a theater. It. No one's ever seen it. Yep, yeah, it just, it, but it exists. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he starts um, very quickly. He starts publishing in other outlets as well. So he publishes a piece in Ghost Stories, makes $1,600 in today's dollars. He keeps trying to... Um, he likes being in Weird Tales, and they they buy a lot of his stuff. But Weird Tales pays on publication, and again, you get a story. Someone decide the editor wants it, but you might not see a check for six months. And he's trying to make it right, so he needs other places to write. Um, uh, let's see. He would. Um, I already kind of talked about them. Oh, so he one of the ways he does this is writing these boxing stories, right? Um, he has he eventually he then just settles on this character Steve Costigan, who is who's a sailor but is a boxer as well, and it's a good conceit for Robert E. Howard because every story Steve Costigan can be in another port, right? He can be in Thailand or he can be so now you got these exotic locales, and then he comes and he's you know he beats everybody up basically. Um, not super remarkable, but they, they also have a, a streak of humor because Steve Costigan is he's he's physically he has a lot of prowess as a fighter, but he's kind of dumb. And Robert E. Howard liked these kind of dumb characters, too. They were just an opportunity to have jokes, right? Sure. Yeah. yeah easy yeah. to write. Yeah. 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 You're, you're never going to. Here's a little little fun fact for writers. You're yeah. never going to write a character who's more intelligent than you are. No, you can't do it. Something yeah. to ponder. Yeah, 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 yeah. And if they're dumb, you get, it can be fun. It, it, hmm. There's a lot of opportunity for humor. But like mm -hmm. Sailor Steve Koskin, he's a big lovable galoot, mm. right? Yeah. He's, you know, he's a big sweet idiot. 
It's like yeah. everybody likes that guy. Yeah. 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 <laughs> we need more dummies, more yeah. dumb characters. Everybody's always posturing as <laughs> more intelligent than they right. are. Right. right, right. Not on Art of Darkness. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> um Okay, now by 1929, um, oh, just kind of pegging where he is like career-wise. By 1929, Howard publishes Skullface, which is uh, his. Uh, I, no, this is not. This isn't a Solomon Kane story, but this is his most popular pre-Conan story. And I'm only pointing it out because he gets paid by Weird Tales five thousand dollars for that story, um, which you know, I don't know how long it took him to write, but five thousand dollars for a. a a piece is pretty darn good, uh, written for the pulps. Um, <clears throat> now here's where around 19, uh, 29, is where Lovecraft comes into the picture for people who want, we're not going to go into HP Lovecraft's biography. Uh, we're just going to go in assuming that, you know, enough about love HP Lovecraft for this to make sense. If you want to know more about HP Lovecraft, we did a, uh, a very popular episode, uh, on him with the great Ben Thomas. So go check that out. In June of 1930, Robert E. Howard wrote a letter to the editor of Weird Tales in praise of Lovecraft's The Rat in the Walls, telling Wright that Lovecraft must have, quote, the most unusual and wonderfully constructed brain of any man in the world. In the letter, Howard identified a uh, little linguistic trick that Lovecraft, a little uh, inconsistency that Lovecraft had had done. Uh and uh, using something about ancient something about ancient druidic languages or something, and Howard knew that Lovecraft wasn't quite right about this. And Lovecraft was like, "Well, who is this guy? Like, I'm literally." Lovecraft thought he was like the only person in the world who would have known that, right? Um, so they strike up this correspondence, um, and this officially brings Robert E. Howard into what is called the Lovecraft Circle. Um, Lovecraft circles made up of a bunch of people, but it's all these writers, most of them writing for the pulps who are in constant correspondence with each other. If you listen to the HP Lovecraft episode, you know, Lovecraft wrote more than a hundred thousand letters in his life. And, um, a fraction of them went to Robert E. Howard. Um, uh, yeah. Um, okay. So uh, over fairly rapidly, once Howard's in the Lovecraft circle, he, that he that is Robert E. Howard, H.P. Lovecraft, and Clark Ashton Smith, they become the the three sort of leaders of the golden age of weird tales. Um, and this basically ends. Lovecraft, uh, Lovecraft dies in 1937. Clark Ashton Smith retires shortly after it. And then that's the end. So there's like this five to eight year sweet spot where uh, weird tales is cranking out. You know, you could pick up an issue and it'd be, you know, a love a Lovecraft story unseen until this moment. Just right? Bangers, just bangers. Mm -hmm. This guy retired from Weird Tales. See, I would have thought that'd be like the CIA. Like you're in right. and you're in. You never get out once well, you've been would, published yeah. in Weird Tales. If he wanted to come back, he could. He had his own issues. We could do an episode gotcha. on him one day. Actually, okay. yeah. All right. Maybe yeah. we will. Maybe yeah. we will. Yeah. Um. Now there is an interesting debate, ongoing debate that. Robert E. Howard and Lovecraft have they're 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 similar in some ways, but they're also very different in other ways. Again, Lovecraft is this sort of pasty intellectual living up, you know, living in his house, never leave, barely ever leaving his house for a lot of his life up in Providence, Rhode Island. 
Howard is living out in Texas, and despite being living as a writer, there's still like rural qualities to his life. He's still got to like take care of the chickens, you know. It's it's a very two very different lifestyles, and in some ways, this led to different perspectives on certain things. Um, here is uh, here's something though that that I, I liked about that came out of a letter, I think a letter about Lovecraft. Yeah, yeah, this is him writing Howard writing to somebody else about Lovecraft. Quote. I'm going to ask Lovecraft if I can use his mythology in my own junk. Illusions, you understand. Uh, you know, there's a scholarly bunch of men writing for weird tales, myself accepted, of course. Well, I have a smattering of various bits of knowledge and a facile and deceptive mind that should gain me admittance in various circles. I suppose a person meeting me for the first time would get the erroneous idea that I am well-read, for if I do say so, I have a knack of disgusting, discussing things I know nothing about. Closer acquaintance discloses the fact that my erudition is all superficial. Reckon that's why intellectual people lose interest in me so damn quick. Um, they had a, well, we'll talk about that in a minute. Howard did write some Cthulhu stories. Um, one of these, his most Cthulhu story is called The Black Stone. And um, I'm just going to give you kind of a quick Wikipedia synopsis of that. Uh, quote, the story opens with an unnamed narrator being gripped with curiosity by a brief reference to the Black Stone in the book uh, Nameless Cults, or also known as the Black Book by Frederick von Junst. He researches the artifact but finds little further information. The ancient, though it is, its age is debated, monolith stands near the village of Stregio Kavar in the mountains of Hungary. There are many superstitions surrounding it. For instance, anyone who sleeps nearby will suffer nightmares for the rest of their life, and anyone who visits the stone on midsummer night will go insane and die. Though the monolith is hated and disliked by all in the village, it is said by the innkeeper that any man who lay hammer or maul to it dies evilly. So the villager, villager simply shun the stone. Got some big Cthulhu stuff in here. It's very much set up about like the the fictitious book, just like Lovecraft's ne Necromonicon. Oh, um, I love, all that, I love that. Oh, dude, I love that. I love yeah. that stuff. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So that's certainly if people if you're a real Lovecraft stan and you've never read out Robert E. Howard, that's probably a good place to start. It's in the Cthulhu mythos. It's it's very much inspired by Lovecraft and it's Robert E. Howard's attempt to write not only write in the Cthulhu mythos, but to write a Lovecraft story. So um, it's pretty good. Yeah. Um, okay. So here's th their big debate, though, between the two of them was about civilization versus barbarism. <laughs> Lovecraft was very much about civilization, right? <laughs> like, as we know, Lovecraft was kind of an elitist. So to him, you know, the urban city life, uh, being in a refined place was was sort of um, I ideal. Um, Robert E. Howard had a little bit more of a penchant for kind of the rough and ready and the rural and that sort of thing. Um, I think I I think there's sort of a, a fundamental kind of agreement because Robert E. Howard he he wrote a lot about barbarians and I think that can that can create the illusion that he like wanted to return to some kind of barbarian lifestyle. And I don't think that was quite true. I think he saw some romance in it, but was also very paranoid about it happening, right? About it being overrun, the the hordes coming over the hill and you know, ruining your, killing you and raping the women and stealing the children, right? Um, but they this was often the tenor of their conversations about like civilization versus versus uh, barbar barbarism. 
Um, there is a quick, there is a period of Howard's writing I want to talk about, which is often referred to as the Irish period. This is, starts from around 1930. Howard invented two characters of Irish legend. One was named Cormac Mac Art. Uh, he never sold the Cormac Mac Art story. Another story was, uh, uh, another character was this guy, Turlo Dub uh, O'Brien, or the Black Turlo, who was uh, an 11th century Irish warrior who appears in about a half a dozen stories. He's also kind of a precursor to Conan in a way. Um, if you wanted to read a story um, about Black Turlough, uh, probably the best one, or the one that I enjoyed the most, was uh, The Dark Man. Uh, the Dark Man, just a quick synopsis. There's the princess of the Black Turlough's clan is kidnapped by the Danes. Um, and despite the fact that the Black Turlough has been exiled from his own clan, uh, honor and propriety... Uh, compels him to try and go rescue her. He takes an unsuitable boat out into the stormy Irish seas and he finds on an island the remnants of a battle with a bunch of stacks of Danish bodies, but also the bodies of smaller, darker men who clearly fought with like animalistic fury, right? It's the description. And in this relic, in this wreckage, he finds a relic, which is the dark man. It's a little statue. And for whatever reason, he lashes this into his boat and he carries on, soon finding that the statue has mystical powers which guide him through the seas and into a climactic battle to rescue this princess, at which time the statue grows to enormous in, excuse me, enormous in size and the, it becomes a beacon for the Pictish warriors for whom it is a, a sacred object. They kind of come out of the woodwork. Um, it's interesting, though, because since this story takes place in the 11th century and Howard's picks are uh, uh, from the Hyborian age, they're actually like this sur small surviving enclave that have lived for thousands of years and maintained their old ways into the 11th century. So there's a, this kind of cool, like almost time travel quality of these like ancient flint stone, flint weapon people showing up in 11th century Ireland. It's kind of fun. Uh <laughs> Okay. Um, yeah. Now he does in another story, quite a good one. He actually goes, uh, Robert E. Howard goes way back in time to when the Picts, before the Picts descended into savagery. Because in the Hyborian Age lore, the barbar they, they were once a, a civilized people and they descended into savagery. He writes a story set when they, the Picts were, uh, uh, yeah, they were more civilized about this character named Bran Machmorn. Bran Machmorn eventually becomes a god to the Picts, but in this story, he's a normal guy. So you see like all these stories, Howard is like is is giving you these little like almost like vignettes of all these different little spots of history. And then there's these kind of threads that run between them. So he's overall creating like a somewhat coherent re-envisioning of human history. Um, okay. Uh, so that's just some hits. This is stuff other than Conan. At the same time, he's writing some Solomon Cain stories. He's writing some boxing stories. He's writing a, a smattering of Westerns and comedies, right? 12 hours a day, usually no more than two drafts of anything. It's just churning out material. Um, but amazing. I mean, about, this is, he's yeah. in his, uh, he's in his Beatles in, uh, Hamburg era. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. cranking it out. Getting it now, in. Yeah. Now let's talk a, bit, a little bit about his personal life in the 1930s. By 1930, Howard is effectively making a modest living as a writing. In the year 1930, he, according to 
according to inflation, uh, actually, there's an article, there's a uh, Wikipedia in Robert E. Howard's Wikipedia page. It lists what he made every year during his writing career, which I've never seen before in a writer's bio like that. But anyway, <laughs> he apparently he made more than $20,000 in today's dollars as a writer in 1930. Not too shabby. He also doesn't, you know, he doesn't have children to support or anything like that. He's living at home still, but so whatever. Also, that adjusted for inflation, like even when you ingest it, I still think, I, I think that undersells it. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, he's living at home and he's making a right. living as a writer. I mean, that's right. like a, even now today, I mean, if you're working part-time at some normie job and you bring that home, you're living at home, you're, you're mm -hmm. sustaining yourself. Yeah. You're feeding yourself. Yeah. 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 Um, but then there, then this happens. <clears throat> 1931, the Farmers National Bank failed, and Howard's entire savings were was wiped out. He moved to a different bank, and should've, this bank too failed. Should have bought Bitcoin. Yeah, right. <laughs> Bitcoin solves this. Uh, over the next year <laughs> or two, <laughs> that's fun when your when your bank fails, and then you take your money to another bank, and that bank fails. Right. Right. That's right. Yeah. You're not the only person too. suffering. Right. No, yeah. for sure. But it's just like, man, the guy, you know, because you're sure. reading as you're I'm reading the buyer. I didn't know this. I'm coming to it. I'm like, he's killing it, man. All right, dude. Yeah. Okay. All right. All okay. right. And yeah. then boom, just no fault of his own. Just yeah. Um, So over the next and, and it's the depression. So it's affecting a lot of people. And over the next year or two, Weird Tales, which was his primary source for, for making money as a writer, goes from weekly to bi-monthly. And Fight Stories, the place where he published a lot of his boxing stories, they they start cutting rates. Um, another magazine he that Farnsworth Wright had started called Oriental Tales, uh, where uh, Howard would publish stories that went under. Um, Nonetheless, he was at the height of his creative powers, obviously. And so he he just he goes and he gets himself a literary agent. Um, and uh, let me just read a quick thing about this. Um, <clears throat> quote, Robert was ready to branch out, out both creatively and economically. He sought out an agent to help him play stories and most likely found it through his friendship with E. Hoffman Price and a pulp author turned agent Otis Adelbert Klein. They agreed to do business in the spring of 1933, and Klein immediately uh, encouraged Robert to start trying other things that he could sell. Detective stories, spices, that's what she called like an erotic little tale, a spicy, uh, and westerns, as we well as still, his regular We still say fiction. spicy, feeling oh, yeah. spicy. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, as well as his regular weird fiction. And it worked. The two made a pretty good team. Klein opened several, several doors for Robert. He found some of the markets not to his liking, but he also found that he was capable of writing beyond the pages of weird tales. Money once again flowed into the Howard house and not a minute too soon. Okay. Now, as the, as the 1930s wore on, there were a few other things going on in, in the Howard household. One of them is that his, his mother, Hester, was growing increasingly sick. And as time went on, Howard was very close to his mother. As we said, that devouring mother archetype thing. He's very close to his mother. And as time goes on, Howard becomes her like primary caretaker in a lot of ways. Um, and taking her to appointments, making sure she's got what she needs as she just dwindles and dwindles and dwindles. Um, now, another thing happens. 1934, Howard meets a girl. And this would be the closest he would ever really have to a girlfriend. And this is uh, the woman Novaline Price, which is quite a name. 
<laughs> now, Novaline had been a girlfriend of Robert E. Howard's friend Tevis Clyde Smith off and on from 1929 to 1932. But when Smith went off and married some other girl, Novaline was still around. And in 1934, she was introduced to Howard. She was fascinated by Howard because she was she read a lot and she thought of herself as a writer. And this is you live in a middle little town, Texas. and You're like that guy. He makes a living doing this like he's he's published in national magazines like I got to meet this guy. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, there's just no there's not too many of those around in Cross Plains, Texas in 19, 1934. Um, let me read you a little thing about them meeting. Mm. Um, yeah, um, <laughs> she, this is when she literally, when she met him, this is from, she wrote a, she put out a memoir called one who walked alone, which was basically her diary entries from uh, the time she knew Robert E. Howard quote, this is when she meets him. This was, this man was a writer, him. It was unbelievable. He was not dressed as I thought a writer should dress. His cap was pulled down low on his forehead. He had on a dingy white shirt and some loose fitting brown pants that only came to his ankles and the top of his high button shoes. He took off his cap and I saw that his hair was dark brown, short, almost clipped. He ran his hand over his hand, head. Bob's a big man, not as tall as Clyde, but is at least six feet tall. He looks so much larger than Clyde. He must weigh 200 pounds, maybe more. We were beside the car now, and I was looking into his eyes and trying to read the expression on them. How do you describe a man's eyes? They were blue or gray, deep, shadowy. I couldn't tell from their expression whether he was happy or unhappy. He must be terribly shy, I thought. His eyes were so uncertain, filled with questions. I always remember his eyes and this meeting. Um, yeah, so... In 1934, Novaline starts teaching at Cross Plains High School, so right in town there. And at first, it's Novaline who pursues Howard, which is cool. Except Howard's mother, Hester, was having none of it. I'm going to read you a little bit on that because this is key. I feel like this is, I feel like this is a big deal, actually. <laughs> so it's going to read a little bit longer bit. Um, <laughs> quote, uh, Okay, Novaline, uh, Novaline was out, out uh, driving around on a joyride with her cousins, Enid and Jimmy. Uh, e Enid and Jimmy Lou. <laughs> she convinces them to drive them to the Howard house, and then we'll pick up from there. Quote, excited, nervous, and scared, Novaline strode down the walk and onto the porch. She could hear the sound of a typewriter, and over that, someone talking loudly. Robert was writing and talking at the top of his voice as he typed. Novaline knocked. After a long interval, Isaac Howard opened the door. Yeah, he barked. Novaline said, I'd like to see Bob, please. Bob? The typing sound stopped. Novaline, more confident, said, yes, I want to speak to Bob. Isaac called out to Hester. Mama, there's somebody here to see Robert. She can't see him, can she? Who is it? Asked Hester from the living room. I'm Novaline Price, she called out. Well, Robert is busy, Hester said, but just then Robert appeared over his father's shoulder. Hello, Robert smiled. Come in. I want you to meet my folks. The ice broken, at least with Isaac, Robert ushered Novaline into the house. More awkward introductions followed, but Novaline didn't care. Robert offered to take her home, and she gleefully shooed her cousins off. They, ta they talked in the Howard living room uh, until polite coughing from the other room convinced Robert to offer Novaline that ride home. Robert went into the other room, explained his plan to his mother, and Novaline heard Hester say loudly and clearly, That's all right, honey. You go right ahead. Forget about me if you can. Novaline did a slow burn while Robert escorted her out of the house. After they left, Isaac, Robert's father, t turned to Hester and asked, Mama, are we going to lose our boy? 
Hester said simply, no, don't worry about that. We're not going to lose him. And with that declaration, the battle lines were drawn between Hester and Novaline. So Novaline would call the Howard house. Hester would pick up. And normally Hester was good at um, preventing distractions from entering Robert's writing routine, right? That she had taken that role on to like make sure he had his bubble, um, which was good. Except, except Robert liked Novaline. He'd never been with a girl before, you know, it's like, it's, and, and, but Hester would answer the phone and then she wouldn't even tell Robert, Robert that she'd called. And so it just gets, it's bad. She really does not. And it's not personal against Novaline. There's nothing wrong with Novaline. Yeah. Listen, thank goodness she did though. Cause I could feel his Kundalini energy coiling up his spine <laughs> Right. As, as he's kept away from right. Novaline and it's yeah. coiling like a snake and coming right. right up into his head. And I can see right. him formulating this, this big muscular man with a sword right in the back <laughs> of his bra. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can understand where, uh, you can understand where some of this aggression came from. He's like deep into his twenties and like, a big you know, testosterone fights and sledgehammers never got laid. Never like you got could... laid. Yeah. <laughs> that reminds me of that great moment in Annie Hall where Woody Allen's character gets, gets laid and he rolls over and he says, uh, there goes another novel. Right. <laughs> with, uh, what is it? Porchnik. Is it Allison Porchnik? Oh, I from in I uh, Annie Hall. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. so funny. There goes it. And then she right. says, sex with you is a very Kafka esque experience. <laughs> You never, you don't want to hear that. Folks. <laughs> and she's like, I, I mean it, I mean it as a compliment. <laughs> ah, I probably need to oh, rewatch boy. Annie Hall. That's, uh, I haven't seen it in a long time. It's That's really funny. Yeah, yeah, it's really good, dude. Um, so, so the, so the, the relationship has a bunch of ups and downs, right? Partially because of Hester interfering, partially because Robert is very focused on his writing still. Um, you know, things are going pretty well at this point. 1934, Conan is in full swing. Um, uh, and at one point, Robert has to take Hester to a doctor in Temple, and he's there for a few months. This is 1935, and this is pretty much the nail in the coffin of this up and down relationship that Robert Howard and Novaline Price have. Um Howard, you know, he could have been with her if he wanted. She she was deeply fond of him, despite numerous mistakes that he made. You know, his character of being like a big dumb galoot, you know, he, he was a talented and ambitious writer, but socially, especially with a woman, it seems that he could have been, he could be a bit awkward. Um, there's a funny story about him once showing up wearing uh, black vaquero pants and uh, a, a, a bandana around his neck which uh, it's just a, a funny look and a drooping mustache. And she was like, what are you doing? Um, so anyway, you know, it could be, he could be kind of awkward, but um, let me read this little bit um, that it's a little bit of a longer part, but I think it'll, I think it'll kind of encapsulate this relationship. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Okay. So <clears throat> quote, um, they saw each other regularly through the Christmas holidays, but without the romantic fervor of before. As 1936 rolled around, Robert and Novaline continued their strained relationship. In late February, Robert showed up after school outside the Hemphall house wearing his best brown suit. 
Novaline got a premonition of impending disaster, but it was too late. Robert was in one of his Irish, his black moods. I said Irish because at one point he referred to his bad moods as his Irish moods, which I think is funny. <laughs> his mother, his mother had taken a turn for the worse. Things were bad at home. He tried over and over again to talk to Novaline, who threw a barrage of banter and quips between them. When Robert explained that he was still acting as nurse to his mother, Novaline challenged him. She said, you could get a nurse who is trained to do the job better than you can. You've got the money. Your dad makes money, too. He certainly makes enough to take care of your living expenses, and you know it. You keep saving your money. For what? Take her, take her, to, take her away, to take her away somewhere? Well, that's fine. But what about you, Robert? You've got to save yourself and keep working to pay for nurses to take care of her. My God, Bob, you're not required to save up, give up your whole life for her. You're writing in everything. Robert grabbed her arm. He was raving. What's work? Man can do any kind of work. Work is not worth a damn unless you work for somebody you love. All my life, I've loved and needed her. I'm losing her. I know that. Damn it to hell. I know that. I want to live. You hear that? I want to live. I want a woman to love, a woman to share my life and believe in me, to want me and love me. Don't you know that? My God, can't you see that? I want to live and to love. Robert's reply left Novaline miserable and frightened. Are you in love with Truett? He asked. Um, in their on again, off again thing, she had dated a friend of his a little bit. And that He did, didn't care for that, obviously. Uh, I want to know. I've got to know. If it's Truett you love, say it. Say it, damn it. Novaline, half crying, said, I don't love anybody. Not anybody at all. She told Robert that she had been accepted to, to Louisiana State University and she would be leaving in the summer to attend classes. She had made up her mind to teach. She, know, she knew she was good at it, and she wanted to be even better. Robert slumped down in his seat. You have a great cause. For life to be worth living, a man, a man or a woman, must have a great love or a great cause. I have neither. Despite the dramatic nature of their relationship, Robert and Novaline continued to drive around talking and laughing, although Novaline confessed that there were many things unsaid between them, and the strain was sometimes uncomfortable. Novaline kept being cheerful, light, and playful in his company. Robert thought she was making fun of him. They maintained a tent. They managed a tender farewell when Novaline went off to college in late May, but Novaline unwittingly supplied a final slap to Robert's face the day she left town. Her mother, complaining about the amount of stuff to transport, noticed a large book of Novaline's a, a large book among Novaline's things. She explained that it was Bob's book. Her mother tried to get Novaline to return it, and they decided to leave it with Dr. Howard at his office as they were pulling out of town. Robert answered her with a shot, saw, sorry, sorry. Robert answered her with a short, cordial note stating that she needn't have returned the book. He wanted her to keep it. And that was the end of their relationship. Novaline, though, was determined to keep in touch with Robert. She liked him too much and wanted too much for them to stay on good terms. She vowed to write him as soon as she got settled into the dorms at LSU, but she never wrote to Robert again. And a few weeks later, Robert E. Howard would be dead. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, so, my God. I was going to say, we've, we, we went, this took a turn because suddenly yeah. we were in, we're in like the Smiths lyrics. Right. Right. Suddenly. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. my God. Wow. Yeah. He died so, young, huh? He died young. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Now, it's not, I'm going to talk 20, He's not a 27 club guy, is he? No, he's 30. Okay. Um, so we're going to do a couple things because I, I want to talk a little bit more about. So what are we going to do here is I'm going to talk a little bit more about Conan and a little bit more about the Hyborian age. And then we're going to tell all the story of, of Robert E. Howard dying. Um, and we're, we're definitely in the home stretch here. So, um, for all the Conan stuff, 
all the time I spent in this material, I have come to think that his greatest creative accomplishment is the Hyborian age is the world in which the Conan stories take place. Um, let me give you just like a little bit of sense of it. What, what is going on here? What is he doing early on? I said he, he sort of, he was recapitulating human history in a way. And, Maybe I can give you a stronger sense of what this is. So the Hyborian Age, the idea is it's it's after Atlantis sank, right? Um, and it and before recorded history. So there's there's Atlantis sinks, human history rises again, and then it falls again, and then recorded history starts up. It's like a dark ages prehistorical dark age. Uh, sorry, there's a dark age um interim between the Hyborian age and between in recorded history. That's the idea. Um, now, how, where does this idea come from? Well, people have probably heard the term Hyperborea, right? Uh, which means beyond the North wind. This is a mythical place in Greek lore where things did not age and other, there's other aspects to this too. In Howard's world, there is a kingdom of Hyperborea. Um, it was, ex it was very prolific when during the time of Atlantis, but uh, after the cataclysm, the Hyperboreans descended into barbarism and they became the Hyborei. Uh, this was basically prehistoric Europe and North Africa, his vision of prehistoric Europe and North Africa. In this vision, the Mediterranean is effectively dry with the Nile taking its place and as the river sticks. Um, his Black Sea is also dry, but the Caspian Sea, which he calls the Villette, is much larger and extends all the way to the Arctic, Arctic Sea. So it, it creates a barrier between basically Europe and, and Russia, effectively. Um, the west coast of Africa is also beneath the sea. Within this world, he has many, many kingdoms and peoples, with many of them drawn in some way from actual historical peoples. The Picts, for instance, we've already talked about a lot, who were sort of his barbarians. Uh, Corinthia is a very Hellenistic civilization in Hyboria. Aquilonia, which is the sort of the jewel of the Hyborian age, um, was supposed to be effectively France. Uh, and actually, he takes the name. There's a region of France called Aquitaine in the Middle Ages, and that's where he took the name Aquilonia. Um, there's Stygia in Hyboria, which is uh, Egypt and is a land of evil sorcerers. <laughs> um, there are the Shem people who are uh, basically the Jews. Um, at one point, they are enslaved by the uh, Stygians. Uh, um, uh, they're the uh, Sumerians, where Conan comes from. Um, and uh, who else we got? Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was going to read this bit, but I think I don't think it makes great radio to just read all of his. He he wrote and here's the thing. He wrote a piece and people should check this out if they're at all interested in this. It's about 8000 words and it's just him telling you the history. It's like an incredibly detailed Wikipedia article that he wrote on the Hyborian age, except he writes it with like Robert Howard Flair. So like some of it's just like lists of characteristics of things, but then he actually does like storytelling, even though there's no characters, it's parts of it are actually really, really well done. Um, and in the after dark, we're going to talk about where some of the influence for this might've come from like very occult sources. Um, and I think that's an interesting story. Um, <clears throat> um, let me think about, okay, I'm going to read you the last, I'm going to read you about how, the Hyborian age fell. And this is from 
this is from uh, Robert E. Howard's essay, The Hyborian Age. <clears throat> okay. Quote, as the inevitable result of imperial expansion, the Aquilonians had become haughty and intolerant. They derided the ruder, unsophisticated Bossonians, and hard feeling grew between them. The Aquilonians despising the Bossonians and the latter resenting the attitude of their masters, who now boldly called themselves such and treated the Bossonians like conquered subjects, taxing them exorbitantly and conscripting them for their wars of territorial expansion, wars the profits of which the Bossonians shared little. Scarcely enough men were left in the marches to guard the frontier, and hearing of Pictish outrages in their homelands, whole Bossonian regiments quit the Numidian campaign and marched to the western frontier, where they defeated the dark-skinned invaders in a great battle. This desertion, however, was the direct cause of Aquilonia's defeat by the desperate Numidians and brought down on the Bessonians the cruel wrath of the imperialists, intolerant and short-sighted as imperialists invari invariably are. Aquilonian regiments were secretly brought to the border of the marches. The Bossonian chiefs were invited to attend a great conclave, and in the guise of an expedition against the Picts, bands of savage Shemitish soldiers were quartered among the unsuspecting villages. Uh, the unarmed chiefs were massacred. The Shemites turned on their stud, stunned hosts with torch and sword, and the armored imperial hosts were hurled ruthlessly on the unsuspecting people. From north to south, the marches were ravaged and the Aquilonian armies marched back from the borders, leaving a ruined and devastated land behind them. And then the Pictish invasion burst in full power along those borders. It was no mere raid, but the concentrated rush, uh, sorry, the concerted rush of a whole nation led by chiefs who had served in Aquilonian armies and planned and directed by Gorm, an old man now, but with the fire of his fierce ambition undimmed. This time, there was no strong-willed villages in their path, manned by sturdy archers. To hold back the rush until the imperial troops could be brought up, the remnants of the Bossonians were swept out of existence, and the blood-mad barbarians swarmed into Aquilonia, looting and burning before the legions warring again with the Numidians could be marched into the west. Zingara seized this opportunity to throw off the yoke, which example was followed by Corinthia and the Shemites. Whole regiments of mercenaries and vassals mutinied and marched back to their own countries, looting and burning as they went. The Picts surged irresistibly eastward and host after host was trampled beneath their feet. Without their Bosonian archers, the Aquilonians found themselves unable to cope with the terrible arrow fire of the barbarians. From all parts of the empire, legions were recalled to resist the onrush, while from the wilderness, horde after horde swarmed forth in apparently inexhaustible supply. And in the midst of the chaos, the Sumerians swept down from their hills, completing the ruin. They looted cities devastated the country, and retired into the hills with their plunder, but the Picts occupied the land that they had overrun, and the Aquilonian Empire went down in fire and blood. <clears throat> now, it's a full realization of Robert E. Howard's fear, uh, the whole, again, the strong men create good times, good times create weak men, weak times create, what is it, hard times, whatever. Um, it, it's, it's, it's that whole thing follows some of the patterns of individual historical moments and there is this cool this interesting narratively part where the picts take over aquilonia but the picts have no their culture had devolved into just like war and hedonism and so when they occupy the palaces and the towns and the villages they don't do anything to keep them up or anything they just live in them and then as the castle falls apart it falls apart and they move on to another one they have no they're nomadic they don't even know they barely care to even like grow crops they just plunder 
And that it's really that attitude or that kind of energy that brings down all of this entire fictitious Europe, right? Crashes. Um, so <clears throat> Robert E. Howard had a vision for this. He may have carried it out further if he'd lived longer, um, though he had he did take a turn towards more Westerns in like the last year or two of his life. So who knows? Um, <clears throat> uh, I want to talk a little bit more excuse me, a little bit more about Conan. Um, I just to focus on a couple stories. Um, so yeah, let me see here. So there's a little bit about, well, we kind of already did that. So let me, let me talk about one other, let me talk about a couple specific stories. So there's, um, we talked about Beyond the Black River. Oh, this is what I want to do. There's a quote from Beyond the Black River that I want to read. I've um, been looking at uh, weird tales covers as I've been listening right. to you. It's stuff yeah. is so, oh, man. <laughs> you know, and you just, yeah, you were right to point out this is the culture. This is the culture. Yeah, it grew. Yeah. It, we all grew. It all grew out of that. Like, yeah, right. yeah. Yeah, no, there is. You look through, you scroll through these and you have to think like, dude, those were on newsstands everywhere. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like how cool was like, <laughs> yeah. Just so, yeah. so vibey and kind of, kind of dirty, a little, you know, mm -hmm. very low brow. Oh yeah. But, yeah man. Oh yeah. yeah. You're on the, you're on the bus. You're on the, the Greyhound from, you know, here to there, man. You right. put that in your pocket. I mean, that was your iPhone. That was what you, yeah. you had. Yeah, yeah. You weren't tweeting. You weren't doom scrolling. You were reading about Conan's adventures in Hyboria. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. That's, that's fun, dude. <laughs> um yeah okay where is this little in, bit in fairness I though i mean in defense of the bird website the bird website is just an interactive tabloid game so the bird the bird website oh is yeah pulp too yeah. oh yeah for sure for sure yeah, yeah absolutely um sorry i'm 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 i've lost this page this bit i want to read so um where did it where did it go beyond the black river 353 you got it, Brad. Yeah. You're, no, you're nailing it. Thank you. Thank Another you. Another one. And I, this is fun. I know people have been looking forward to this. I certainly have been looking forward to this. I know Brad's going to bring in yeah. a hot after dark for Patreon. Please oh, yeah. It's going to be good. the podcast. These core episodes are the heart of what we do. We want to continue doing this for a long time. Your support makes it possible. Patreon, Substack. You can also support us directly through PayPal. It's all on the website, artofdarkpod.com. I also want to encourage people, if you haven't already followed us on YouTube, do it. Easy to do. YouTube.com slash at Art of Dark Pod. And Spotify. Spotify appears to be where we have most of most of our listeners, although people are all, all over the place. Uh, mm. Yeah, just definitely subscribe. And we do love hearing from people. So if you want to reach out, get at us. We have a Gmail account, artofdarkpod at gmail.com calm just giving brad a little cover here yeah and yeah hit, hit yeah all the uh you know the champs yeah yeah well let's read let's actually read um uh talk about um the tower of the element because i i beat this beyond the black river story to death and I, I should talk about at least one or two other conan stories one um is the tower of the elephant this is a fairly early one in his writing and it is uh, I think it's the third Conan story that, that Robert E. Howard wrote. So this would be like 1932. Um, and this is Conan as scurrilous thief. 
which is a good which is a good character. I think that's easy to forget when you watch the movie, um, which is great. Everybody loves Conan the Barbarian, but there's a there's also Conan. It will just steal your stuff if he wants it. Right? That's another side. That's another side of him. Um, and so you don't want you definitely don't want to forget that. So um, in this story, he basically sets out to perform what he's been told is an impossible heist in the tower of the elephant. And we're not going to read into the back, back end of it, but you know, he uncovers this like deep ancient mystery up there and he gets into a fight with like a, a room sized spider that he manages to kill. And it's, it's, it's pretty epic. Um, but I want to read actually, um, from the beginning of it. Um, and, because it includes one of his bet, one of Robert E. Howard's most quotable quotes. And also, I just like it. <clears throat> so this is a bit, I'm going to read a page or two <clears throat> from the Tower of the Elephant. Quote, torches flared murkily, murkily on the revels in the mall where the thieves of the, of the East held carnival by night. In the mall, they could carouse and roar as they liked, for honest people shunned the quarters and watchmen, well paid with stained coins, did not interfere with their sport. Along the crooked, unpaved streets with their heaps of refuse and sloppy puddles, drunken roisterers staggered, roaring. Steel glinted in the shadows where wolf preyed on wolf, and from the darkness rose the shrill laughter of women and the sounds of scufflings and strugglings. Torchlight licked luridly from broken windows and wide-thrown doors, and out of those doors stale smells of wine and rank sweaty bodies, clamor of drinking jacks and fists hammered on rough tables, snatches of obscene songs rushed like a blow in the face. In one of these dens, merriment thundered to the low, smoke-stained roof where rascals gathered in every stage of rags and tatters, furted, uh, furtive Cut purses, leering kidnappers, quick-fingered thieves, swaggering bravos with their wenches, strident-voiced women clad in tawdry finery, native rogues were the dominant element, dark-skinned, dark-eyed Zamorians, with daggers at their girdles and guile in their hearts. But there were wolves of half a dozen outland nations there as well. There was a giant Hyperborean renegade, taciturn, dangerous, with a broadsword strapped to his great gaunt frame, for men wore steel openly in the mall. There was a Shemitish counterfeiter with, a, with his hook nose and curled blue-black beard. There was a bold-eyed Berthunian wench sitting on the knee of a tawny-haired Gunderman a wandering mercenary soldier, a deserter from some defeated army, and the fat, gross rogue whose body jests were causing all the shouts of mirth was a professional kidnapper come up from distant Koth to teach women stealing to Zamorians who were born with more knowledge of the art than he could ever attain. This man halted in his description of an intended victim's charms and thrust his muzzle into a huge tankard of frothing ale. Then blowing the foam from his fat lips, he said, By Bell, God of all thieves, I'll show them how to steal wenches. I'll have her over the Zamorian border before dawn, and there'll be a caravan waiting to receive her. Three hundred pieces of silver, a, a count of Ofer promised me for a sleek young Berthunian of the better class. It took me weeks, wandering among the border cities as a beggar to find one I knew would suit and is she a pretty baggage? He blew a slobbery kiss in the air. I know lords and Shem who would trade the secret of the elephant tower for her, he said, returning to his ale. 
A touch on his tunic sleeve made him turn his head, scowling at the interruption. He saw a tall, strongly made youth standing beside him. This person was as much out of place in that den as a gray wolf among mangy rats of the gutters. His cheap tunic could not conceal the hard, rangy lines of his powerful frame, the broad, heavy shoulders, the massive chest, lean waist, and heavy, sh heavy arms. His skin was brown from outland suns, his eyes blue and smoldering, a shock of tousled black hair crowned his broad forehead. From his girdle hung a sword and a worn leather scabbard. The Chthonian involuntarily drew back, for the man was not one of any civilized race he, know, he knew. You spoke of the Elephant Tower, said the stranger, speaking Zamorian with an ancient alien accent. I've heard much of this tower. What is its secret? The fellow's, the fellow's attitude did not seem threatening, and the Chthonian's Cthon uh, courage was bolstered up by the ale and the evident approval of his audience. He swelled with self-importance. The secret of the Elephant Tower, he exclaimed. Why, any fool knows that Yara the priest dwells there with the great jewel men called the Elephant's Heart. That is the secret of his magic. The barbarian digested this for a space. I have seen this tower, he said. It is set in a great garden above the level of the city, surrounded by high walls. I have seen no guards. The walls would be easy to climb. Why has not somebody stolen this secret gem? The Kothian stared wide-mouthed at the other's simplicity, then burst into a roar of derisive mirth in which the others joined. Hearken to this heathen, he bellowed. He would steal the jewel of Yara. Hearken, fellow, he said, turning portentously to the other. I suppose you are some sort of a northern barbarian. I am a Sumerian, the outlander answered in no friendly tone. The reply and the manner of it meant little to the Kothian. Of a kingdom that lay far to the south on the borders of Shem, he knew only vaguely of the northern races. Then give ear and learn wisdom, fellow, said he, pointing his drinking jack at the discomfited youth. Know that in Zamora and more especially in this city, there are more bold thieves than anywhere else in the world, even Koth. If mortal man could have stolen the gem, be sure it would have been filched long ago. You speak of climbing walls, but once having climbed, you would quickly wish yourself back again. There are no guards in the gardens at night for a very good reason. That is, no human guards. But in the watch chamber, in the lower part of the tower, are armed men. And even if you pass those who roam the gardens by night, you must still pass through the soldiers, for the gem is kept somewhere in the tower above. But... If a man could pass through the gardens, argued the Sumerian, why would he not come at the gem through the upper part of the tower and thus avoid the soldiers? Again, the Kothian gaped at him. Listen to him, he shouted jeeringly. The barbarian is an eagle who would fly to the jeweled rim of the tower, which is only a hundred and fifty feet above the earth, with rounded sides slicker than polished glass. The Sumerian glared about him, embarrassed at the roar of mocking laughter that greeted his remark. He saw no particular humor in it and was too new to civilization to understand its discourtesies. Civilized men are more discourteous than savages because they know they can be impolite without having their skulls split as a general thing. Anyway, okay. That's Conan. That's a... Uh... It was hard. Introduced to the world. Yeah. <laughs> it does go hard. It does go hard. That's a, okay. that's a hell of a way to go having your skull split open by a sword, dude. Right? I guess it's fast anyway. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That, you're not bleeding out. It's just you're shut off. Yeah. 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 It's like flipping a switch. Yeah. Now, um, just quick for people who maybe haven't read Conan before, a couple other just recommendations I would say that are, you know, they're not they're they're not of equal all e of equal quality. Uh, a very good one is the people of the black circle. This is uh one in which uh, Conan is the leader of an Afghuli tribe, who are clearly the Afghanis, um, and he gets involved in 
a pretty intense magical battle with uh, a, a secretive cult that that uh, you know lives in some kind of compound. Uh, Queen of the Black Coast is when uh, Conan becomes a pirate. He, he effectively gets shanghaied, and we're introduced to a very popular, uh, sexy female, sexy powerful female pirate character. Um, uh, yeah, I think those are the big ones. And I also mentioned, uh, beyond the, beyond the black river, um, red nails is also, is also a good one in which, uh, Conan sort of discovers there's this city, this fortress city that he discovers kind of out in the wasteland. And inside of it are two peoples who live at opposite end of the fortress who've been fighting each other for like 50 years. And it's it's kind of a cool little Twilight Zone sort of setup. So that's also a good one. Red Nails. Um, now, Howard eventually, not even eventually, the, 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 the period of Conan productivity for Robert E. Howard is effectively from 1932 to about late 1934 into 1935. So it's really only like three years. And he writes these 21 short stories. And some of them are long. I mean, I think the the the. Tower, the uh, Tower of the Elephant is probably 60 pages long. Um, some of them are more like novellas than they are short stories, uh, though, though they do vary in length. And he did write one novel as well, The um, Hour of the Dragon. Um, so why does he turn away from Conan the Barbarian, right? People seem to like it. It seemed to resonate even with him. He wrote more Conan stories than about any other individual character. Why would he uh, so quickly abandon it? Um, there were there were reasons. I'm going to read quickly from the biography. Um, <clears throat> quote, there are two reasons why Robert turned away from Conan. The first reason may have been an allusion to the quote above in a letter to uh, Clark Ashton Smith. Basically, Robert had nothing, had said everything he was trying to say. There's nothing to suggest he would have come back to Conan. In fact, everything points to Robert creating a new character uh, should he have returned to fantasy. Seldom did Robert go back to a character that he had already written about. He wasn't writing, he'd quit writing Solomon Cain stories, he'd quit writing Cull stories, etc. <clears throat> but here's what I think is the big reason. The second reason he, uh, Robert turned away from Conan was an economic decision, as this letter to Farnsworth Wright from May of 1935 illustrates. <clears throat> Quote, I always hate to write a letter like this, but dire necessity forces me. It is in short an urgent plea for money. My expenses for the past month have been great. My mother was forced to have her gallbladder removed, a very serious operation, especially for a woman of her age and state of health. She's been almost an invalid for years. <laughs> uh, reading a little bit further down. And that brings me to the matter at hand. For some time now, I've been receiving a check regularly each month from Weird Tales. Half checks, it is true. But by practicing the most rigid economy, I've managed to keep my head above the water. That I was able to do, so it was largely because of, not the size, but the regularity of the checks I came to depend on them. Okay. Um, he ends up requesting that Farnsworth Wright pay him the money he owes him. Weird Tales at this point owes him like $800. <clears throat> um, a little bit further down. Quote, quote, of course, I sell to other magazines from time to time, but these sales are uncertain. To make markets regularly requires much time and effort, and for years, most of my time and effort has been devoted to the stories I've written for Weird Tales. I may not, may never be a great writer, but no writer ever worked with more earnest sincerity than I have worked on the tales that have appeared in your magazine. I have grown up in the magazine, so to speak, and it is as much part of my life as are my hands and arms. But to a poor man, the money he makes is his life's blood. And of late, when I write of Conan's adventures, I have to struggle to accept the disheartening reflection that if the story is accepted, it may be years before I get paid for it. So largely, he turns away because it doesn't make enough money. 
And yet, a few decades later, Conan the Barbarian is an entire business into itself. Comic books, video games, movies, collections, etc., etc., etc. So a lot of people made a lot of money off of Conan, but not Robert E. Howard. Um, he makes this turn towards Westerns uh, at the very end of his career, as I've mentioned. Um, he writes... <sighs> Uh, stories about a character named uh, El Barak or uh, Francis X. Gordon. Um, this guy is a Texan gunfighter who ultimately settles in Afghanistan and has a bunch of adventures there. Um, he also writes an entire novel worth of stories about a, a big galoot character named Breckenridge Elkins. Um, he's a dumb cowboy. I think even, even Robert E. Howard would have called him that, who is effectively himself he's kind of putting himself in and satirizing himself in this story um he's a character who's always being pushed around by his family pushed into things made demands of and sort of giving himself up these were put out uh these stories were were strung together in a novel called a gent from bear creek that came out in 1937 and for a while a copy of a gent from bear creek was the most valuable collectible Robert E. Howard book because I think they did a very small run and I think it was done in Europe and most of it got most of them never really even saw the light of day so that's floating out around there um and then he wrote a character named James Allison and James Allison is I think the most autobiographical kind of in a metaphysical way the most autobiographical character uh Robert E. Howard invented um so <laughs> it's pretty interesting. So let me read this bit from AmazingStories.com. <clears throat> Quote, There is one more series in Howard's pseudo-history that concerns readers of sword and sorcery. The tales of James Allison take place both in modern times and in the far past, in that time after the Hyborian kingdoms of Conan. Allison is a crippled Texan who lost a leg when his horse fell on him. To escape boredom and sadness, he ventures into the past, exploring his previous lives as mighty warriors. All these ancients ancestors were members of a migration of Aryans as they traveled the world in search of a homeland. Unlike the Conan stories, which have several inspirations, the idea for Allison's cosmic time travel can be traced to one source. That author is Jack London and his novel, The Star Rover, in which Daryl Standing, a prisoner, is tortured by a device called the Jacket. Going into a trance, Standing not only endures the pain, but also explores his past lives. Howard's narrator is not a murderer, but a frustrated Texan youth trapped in his life. It isn't hard to see a bit of Howard in Allison, both Texans stuck in rural backwaters. Um, okay, I think here's the last bit I'm gonna of uh, a last bit of Howard writing I'm gonna share. Um, this is from uh, the Valley of the Worm, um, and this is a bit of James Allison. This 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 Texan. Uh, this Texan boy who who is sort of trapped in his body and goes on these dream adventures into his own past lives, which I think is sort of a way Robert E. Howard understood what he was doing himself. Right? Interesting. The I kind of focus on okay. This. Yeah. Cool. Mm. <clears throat> what an interesting character this fellow is. I'm 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 sad to hear that he didn't live longer. I'm also I hate when our our subjects have wild success after they die. That always frustrates it's, me. It is oh. right because you know at the moment they assumed like all oh, this I did was for nothing. Nobody's gonna care. It won't matter. Like it was mm -hmm. all in vain. It was all in vain. and it always is. I mean, a thousand years from now, but like still, 
there was recognition to be had and you'd like these people to get it. Yeah, you'd like to life. have had like it, there's a in, in a multiverse there's another uh, universe where uh, Robert E Howard was flown out to LA and feted right. and treated like a celebrity and right. got laid and right. and ended up, you know, <laughs> drowning in his own vomit next to the pool. Like, you right. know, okay. All right. Well, you know, <laughs> and on and on. Yeah. Right. You know. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay, this is from the Valley of the Worm. <clears throat> I will tell you of Njord and the Worm. You have heard the tale before in many guises wherein the hero is named Tyre or Pecius or Siegfried or Beowulf or St. George, but it was Njord who met the loathly dem demoniac thing that crawled hideously up from hell and from which meeting sprang the cycle of hero tales that revolves down the ages until the very substance of the truth is lost and passes into the limbo of all forgotten legends. I know whereof I speak. For I was Njord. As I lie here waiting death, which creeps slowly upon me like a blind slug, my dreams are filled with glittering visions in the pageantry of glory. It is not of the drab, diseased rack life of James Allison I dream, but all the gleaming figures of the mighty pageantry that have passed before and shall come, come after. For I have right faintly glimpsed not merely the shapes that trail out, behind but shapes that come after as a man in a long parade glimpses far ahead the long lines of figures that precede him winding over a distant hill etched shadow like against the sky i am one in all the pageantry of shapes and guises and masks which have been are and shall be the visible manifestations of that elusive intangible but vitally existent spirit now promenading under the brief and temporary name of james allison each man on earth, each woman, is part and all of a similar caravan of shapes and beings, but they cannot remember. Their minds cannot bridge the brief, awful gulfs of blackness which lie between those unstable shapes and which the spirit, soul, or ego in spanning shakes off its fleshy masks. I remember. Why I can remember is the strangest tale of all. But as I lie here with death's black wings slowly unfolding over me, all the dim folds of my previous lives are shaken out before my eyes, and I see myself in many forms and guises, braggart, swaggering, fearful, loving, foolish, all that men have been or will be. Yeah. A hell of a like, writer. He is. He can yeah, be, and he, sure. he believed in past lives. I mean, he he believed in this chain of lives. Very strange. And he, and he did, right? No drug use, no psychedelic use that we know. No, of. not at all. I mean, he he wow. had his phase of drinking, you know, go sure. down the ice out, just get a punch up, getting a punch up, and have a few cold ones. But yeah, no, no, hmm. just curious. Sitting, just this is a, this is the thing that I, I think um, maybe yeah, this is a, something about the creative process. If you do that for twelve hours a day, you go somewhere in your head. You're not. You're, there's a universe in here as much as there is out here if you're doing that. And I think he just like thought his way through, like he created an entire world in his head, right? And, and then occupied it. Um, right. And, it, and it's sort of like half based on reality. And then, mm -hmm. but most of it isn't. And it's, it's right. historical, but not. Right. Yeah. Right. He's a man and who I lived think, in his dreams. Yeah, I think one of the, you know, you think about like, well, why didn't he just write it in history, actual history? And it's like, well, if you write it in actual history, then you got to like, you, people can come along and be like, well, actually, in the year 1327, you know, and it's like, dude, I don't care. Like, I'm trying to tell you a story, a, 
a story here, right? So like, and I think that's part of the reason he did the, he created this world too. You change it enough, and then you can you can move the pieces around as you see fit, sort of. Um, yeah, because if you try, I'm sure I can't imagine being like somebody who writes historical fiction, or you know, you've got to have so many people who are just like pointing out, like, you, did you know that in that year? on that kind of sailboat, they didn't use a rope of this, you know, just like technical details that are kind of um, significant, but also also not in a certain way. Um, okay, now we're talking about Robert E. Howard's death. There has been a great deal of mythologizing about Robert E. Howard's death, and uh, I'm going to assume that the Mark Finn, the man who wrote Blood and Thunder, is giving us the real deal. So I'm going to go with his version of it. Um, I haven't found anybody to contradict him, but like I said, there's a lot of like mythology about it. Um, we do need to somewhat preface the whole thing uh, by saying a few words about Robert E. Ho Robert Howard's relationship to death. He would talk occasionally to people he was close to about suicide. He told Novelin and others that he couldn't go on without his mother. At one point in 1930, Robert E. Howard went to a doctor um, to because Robert e. Howard was convinced he had something called a varicosal, which apparently is an enlarged mass of veins in the scrotum. I'd never heard of that before, but um, and he was also concerned um a large that, mass of veins in the scrotum yeah uh, yeah i've never what's it called a uh, varicosal ooh varicosal uh varicosal well, varicose yeah varicosal veins yeah yeah i don't know they you're, refer to it as in... a varicosal so i don't know okay okay you're in varicosal now you're yeah, in Carcosa yeah. now. Yeah. But it, yeah, anyway. And <laughs> okay. he also, the other thing he wanted to bring up to the doctor was he was afraid that he had a small penis. I, I don't know what he expected the doctor to do about that. Maybe he was, he was worried he had a small, he had a worried it was at a small penis, huh? I, maybe he was looking for reassurance. Like, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I listen, yeah. I I it's the farthest thing. I, I have generally have a pretty good imagination. I generally have a lot of empathy, but that's something <laughs> that I can't possibly <laughs> I can sympathize with a guy who wants to cleave my head open with a sword. Right, right, right. right. This is very funny that he was worried about that, <laughs> right? Given what yeah. the, the character he created. Right. Once again, right. though, you know, I think he would have eluded Freud. I don't think Freud would have been. I, able to I do think, I with think this. you're right. Well, and this is the thing: it, it, we don't know that he had a small penis. We know no. that he thought he did. Right. It's in the, which yeah. isn't the same thing. Right. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. it's 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 a it's a Rashomon problem we have with, <laughs> with Robert E. Howard's member. And in the after dark, we're no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> right, because this isn't like a uh, this isn't like a Nostradamus situation where they didn't right. put it into a jar and they don't display it at the Texas right. State Fair every year. Right. But right. in an alternate yeah. universe, in the multiverse, Robert E. Howard's yeah. Yeah. hog. Is displayed at the <laughs> Texas State Fair. Wow, this, like this. This, this took a turn. Yeah. This episode, I like yeah. it. Now, here's what the uh, here's what the doctor concluded. <clears throat> "Quote: We do not think there's anything wrong with Robert. 
We can find no varicosal of any consequence, and his organs are normally developed, and he tests out good in every respect. His trouble, in our judgment, is due to his thinking there is something wrong. After he has dispelled this thought from his mind, he mind he will be in fine shape. Um, the doctor just diagnosed him with sexual neurasthenia, which is characterized by fatigue, insomnia, and general unhappiness. Um, he uh, also, at one point, got into a dark enough mood to write this letter. Um... <clears throat> this is part of a letter. Oh, who is this to? Is this to Novelin? This was to Tavis Clyde Smith, a lifelong friend of his. <clears throat> Quote, I am composed of two elements, intellect and animal instinct. Both are above average. My intellect tells and proves logically that there is nothing to life, that it is a barren and empty bauble to which we cling. My animal instinct commands that I live in spite of hell and damnation. My intellect sees, knows, and realizes my my instinct gropes blindly in the dark like a blindfolded giant, seeing nothing, knowing nothing except the tremendous urge to exist. It does not reason, it does not weigh cause and result, nor seek the why and wherefore. All that it knows is life, and toward life it grasps and clutches as a tree gropes to the light. Deep in my buzz, bosom, I lock him, the giant that grips me to the life, to life the floods of eternity rock him. His talons drip red with the strife. He in the shadows is brooding away from the light of my brain, but his hands are forever intruding. He anchors my soul with a chain. Okay. Now, on June 10th, 1936, Hester Howard, Robert's mother, for whom Robert had been basically the primary caregiver, and despite having several nurses that attended to her, he was often the one they came to ask questions. It had become like a part-time or maybe even sometimes a full-time job taking care of Hester, making sure she was squared away. Um, she, on June 10th, 1936, she slips into a coma. Excuse me. And for 36 straight hours, Robert stays awake by her side. Um, during this time, a couple notable things happen. One is that Dr. Howard, uh, his father, takes all of the guns out of the house. Uh, another is that Robert asks his father, he says, uh, when mother dies, where will you go? He asks this to his father. And Dr. Howard says, why, I'll go wherever you go, son. And then I'm going to read this last little bit. So it's an intense moment here in the Howard household. <clears throat> Quote, to keep himself awake, Robert asked the nurse for black coffee, which he'd never drank before. With untold amounts of caffeine coursing through him, deprived of sleep, a house full of strangers, creatively spent, feeling as if he would never collect monies owed to him, and feeling abandoned by his friends, it is not hard to see that Robert was clearly out of his mind. At some point, it became clear that Hester would never emerge from her coma, and at this moment, Robert went out of the house, got into his car, and shot himself in the head. He would survive for eight hours. Damn. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. So his, his mother goes into a coma and he shoots himself. Yeah, she died. Of, she died like the next day or something. Like oh. it was over for her. Yeah. Yeah. That that poor man. His right. father. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 That is yeah. a devouring mother. That's. 
I maybe I take back what I said about the Freud business. <laughs> like, yeah, damn. you might be able to get this to the bottom Whoa. of some of this. Yeah, it's just it's it's and, and you know I think it's it's tricky. It's like his father took all the guns out of his house, and more than once Robert E. Howard had told people like I can't go on without mom. I I'm not going to be able to make it if she's gone. And when she got as sick as she did, Isaac Howard knew he's like we got to get the guns out of the house. Apparently Robert had another revolver or whatever, right? Um, well, that's Texas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody's, everybody's strapped. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's funny. It's one point he was visited by another writer, Robert E. Howard was, uh, from somebody back east. And they wrote in a letter, they said, he's really paranoid. He drives around with a gun in the car. And I was like, well, that's just, yeah, just, just in Texas. Texas. It's yeah, not like, yeah. you don't yeah. have to be like paranoid yeah. to do that, right? Sure. It's not. Yeah. But... But yeah, and that's that. I mean, that's the life of Robert E. Howard. Um, in the after dark, we're going to talk about um, we're going to talk about the possibly uh, the the occult inspiration for some of the details of Robert E. Howard's Hyborian age, and we're going to talk in depth about the the story he wrote as a young man. the The story he wrote that's called "The Last Race." Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that story, what it was actually about, and the ins and outs of that, and 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 then we'll just. We'll just rap a little bit too, I think. Yeah. Yeah. We like yeah. to, yeah, we, we hang out after these episodes. We do the after dark for Patreon. Brad, what is, what is best in life? <laughs> uh, recording an episode of Heart of Darkness. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's to crush your enemies, see them driven before you and to hear the lamentation of their women because they yeah. didn't, they didn't subscribe to Patreon. <laughs> really there's more art of darkness where this came from right mm-hmm. i uh i'm preparing the fitzgerald part two go back listen to part one that was the episode we did live our first live episode uh, like i said earlier on this one we're gonna do houdini in detroit a live yeah. show so yeah uh if you're if you're in the midwest if you're in michigan you're kind of in the vicinity start plotting i there might even be somebody who gets on a plane to come hang out with us that would be a lot of yeah, fun that'd love be to really see cool. everybody yeah. uh and uh, that's going to be a good time. Brad, this is a banger. I know this is Thanks, one man. people have been really excited about. I found a bit in his Wikipedia about his suicide note. Did you? Yeah, he had that? written. He hadn't written a note so much as there was a piece of paper that he kept that had a poem on it that mm. um, I can find that real. Quick. I got it right here. I'll read Do you, it. Okay. Yep. Yeah. It's it. all fled, all done. So lift me on the pyre. The feast is over and the lamps expire. Mm-hmm. And that's that was found in his typewriter. Lines were taken from the poem, The House of Caesar by Viola Garvin. Yeah. There's some dispute whether it was on the typewriter or it was something he kept in his pocket. But yeah. Yeah. There, there yeah. appears to be a museum devoted to Robert E. Howard I, now. I believe it's his house in Cross Plains. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All little, right. Little periodic yeah. periodic reminder. Uh hide the guns. You don't ever have to do yeah. that. You got yeah. and listen, you never know. You might you might feel like you're you're a hack and you haven't done anything with your life and you're 30 years old and your mother you're going through hell. Mm-hmm. Listen, if you stick around with us and hang out and and don't go through with it, you might end up in Hollywood and you might have the chance to to die drowning your own in your own vomit by the pool after a decade of debauchery. Do you know what I'm saying? Like stick around, stick around. Yeah. Yeah. These suicides are always tough, man. Like this one comes out of left field. It's very strange for me to think about the guy who created that iconic character that 
Arnold, I mean, mm-hmm. hell, Arnold, would Arnold be the, have ever become the governor of California if it had not been for the Conan the Barbarian role? Yeah, Hard yeah. to say. Yeah. yeah. Hard to say. So in a sense, Robert E. Howard became the governor of California. Well, if, reincarnation, right? right? Like from yeah, a certain yeah. angle. So just very, very, very strange. And, yeah. and, and that poor man, he obviously had some some real agony. It's very hard yeah. to lose lose a parent. And and he was he he never did he ever lose his virginity? Do we know? He was I like don't, I don't hell? I don't think that he did. Damn. Yeah. There's no okay. good evidence that he did. Yeah. Hmm. Well, and the thing I think too is like I think he always had this sort of suicidal tendency or whatever, but I think there was a thing too, not only the um not only his mother slipping into the coma but this staying up for 36 hours um drink coffee for the first i think there was like also you threw in like a general suicidal tendency and then this sort of crazed moment where inhibitions are gone you're not thinking straight at all like yeah part of him that might have talked himself out of it was not was not was absent at the moment it was in hy- so- hyperborea Right, right, right. So you wonder if there's just this like few minute sequence where if somebody could have just held on to him for that, he wouldn't have done it, you know? Right. But yeah, what a tragedy. What is Robert E. Howard doing today, do you think? What is like a guy who invents a new genre in pulp? (laughs) What is his equivalent today, do you think? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. It's like, if you could imagine a new genre, you would just invent it, right? So they're very it's very hard to do. Uh but you know, I think I think he he would have translated to film really well. Like I mm. I, I or television, like I think there is definitely a market. I know they tried to make the Conan movie with Jason Momoa and it wasn't that great. I think there is a market for a like a pick a picturesque or picaresque uh high prestige TV series where every episode it's not so much continuous like episode to episode but every episode is like um kind of stands alone in a way it's like the mm. adventures of Conan right and, mm. and and over time he's building up to be the king of Aquilonia but mostly it's just this sort of roaming adventure kind of thing mm. i think that could be kind of cool yeah. yeah, the right All the right. right cast, the right director, the right writers. Um, and I think if that were to happen, Robert E. Howard should be right in the mix. I think he'd be. Yeah, he would. He'd be a hell of a te- television writer right now for yeah. this for this period. I think he'd also be amazed at how he and his weird little misfit band like took over the entire culture in a sense. <laughs> right. 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 Look at look at me now. Like yeah. who who really is reading Henry James? Right. right right like i know we're supposed to but <laughs> right. nobody's thinking about henry james tonight no. unless they're they have to whereas this stuff is like everywhere you look mm-hmm. you don't have mm-hmm. to look twice for it no no yeah. not at all yeah yeah it's omnipresent yeah and it's and it's an american it's an american it's an American genre. It's a it's a big mm-hmm. chapter in that book of American letters. Is Unique this thing. contributions of of America to to the arts, not the the creation of a new form per se. Mm-hmm. Although we've done a few of those, but right. uh, a real massive contribution to literature. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. 
All right. Well, be sure to get laid out there and uh, <laughs> try to, you know, take care of yourselves. And, and uh, you know, we love all of you. Thank you so much for listening to Art of Darkness. Brad, hit what you're going to do for the uh, Patreon After Dark one more time before yeah. I cleave your skull in two. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to talk about the occult roots of of uh, the Hyborian Age, and we're going to talk about uh, Robert E. Howard's um, uh, uh, difficult-to-handle story, <laughs> The Last Race. Patreon.com slash Sorry, sorry. Let me correct it. Sorry. Ah. That story is called The Last White Man. The sorry. Last White Man. Okay, very yeah. good. I'm sure um, uh, people yeah. are racing racing <laughs> well we that. say oh, you get sometimes you yeah. say the controversy hey. for the after dark hey yeah you know there you go yeah yeah, yeah. at patreon and now on substack too all right brad right. buckle right. up i'm gonna get you all right you ready one two three <laughs> what's it sound like it'd be like a squishy squishing crackling kind of sound be the last thing you fucking hear <laughs> yeah.